Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction, a podcast that brings you award-winning stories of William H. Coles, the creator of the website for writers, storyandliteraryfiction.com. Today, we have the acclaimed novel, Guardian of Deceit, a character-based story with dramatic plot, great characters, and intriguing settings, and hundreds of top reviews. This is the final episode, so let's get started. Part 4, Chapter 42 Laszlo muted the Jets game to answer the knock on his apartment door. An exhausted, red-eyed Bonita Thomas took his hand. Oh, Dupa, Betsy's disappeared. I need help. He invited her in and said he'd be glad to help, settled her in an armchair, and went to the kitchenette where he could see her and still hear. What happened? he asked as he took out the automatic drip maker. She's gone. Last night the police are looking, but they won't do anything until they're convinced she didn't run away. He came back into the living room and sat across from her on the sofa while the coffee perked. He leaned forward. Tell me the details, Bonita, step by step, from how you found out till now. He reached into the drawer of a side table and took out a pad of lined paper and a pen. From the beginning, he said. I didn't find out until this morning. She didn't show for work. They called me. She didn't come home last night. She's at her apartment in town most all the time now. She has a roommate. When's the last time she was here with you? Well, maybe six weeks ago. School's out. Why was she in town? Work, mainly for training. She usually swims daily at the college. She has a coach. I've seen her using the pool here. Isn't that her training? She still swims here sometime. She likes the privacy of the pool, but most of the serious training is done at the college or the Y. So what happened when they called you? Was it the owner of the restaurant? The manager. No one answered the apartment phone, and they couldn't find the girl she lives with. They knew me and called. And they've had no word from Betsy? None. What time did they expect her? Eleven o'clock and she's almost always on time or early. The coffee maker hissed completion of the cycle. Was her wallet at the apartment, her driver's license? Was there a suitcase there that she used when she traveled? I went. Then the police searched, too. They didn't find her wallet, and there was no note. A backpack and a carry-on she used for travel were under the bed. Laszlo got up and fixed them both coffee. Bonita liked it with cream and sugar. He brought the mugs and sat down. I've got to ask, was there any trouble between you two, anything at all that might make her run? I don't think so. I wanted her to stay with me, but we didn't fight about it. She's doing okay in school. She is a competitive swimmer, expected to qualify for the nationals. That keeps her busy and out of trouble. What trouble would you expect if she weren't a serious athlete? I didn't mean she'd do anything wrong. She doesn't have time for boys or partying. She's never idle, like so many of the kids here during the summer. I've never asked you, what about her dad? We don't discuss him. How long now? A little more than six years. Was she stressed? It was a serious blow to her. She hides it well, but I know it hurt her. Does she speak to her father? I'm sure she speaks to him. I don't know how often. She's not forthcoming sometimes, and I don't see her often. She didn't approve of his new wife, 
I know that. She may have blamed her for breaking up the family. Did Betsy socialize a lot? She went to church. What church? Catholic? You went to church together? Sometimes. But I usually go Saturday afternoons. Did she drink? She didn't approve of drinking or smoking, and she was uncomfortable with sex before marriage, at least until engagement or some permanent commitment. Did she ever have sex? How can I know? What 20-year-old hasn't today? With men? She isn't lesbian. How can you be sure? I can't, I guess, but I think I can usually see lesbian tendencies. Even in your daughter? I think so. What about the girl she lives with? Could that have been romantic? I don't think so. It was a convenience to save on the rent. I don't think they knew each other before this summer. Who arranged the apartment? Her coach, I think. Is the roommate an athlete, too? Bonita shook her head no. I think she was a niece or a cousin of the coach. I'm not sure that's exactly right, but something like that. She's a partier, spends most nights out. Betsy rarely sees her. Lazo caught up on his notes without saying anything. Will you help? Bonita asked. Of course. I'll need photos. I want to look at her apartment. Could we go there now? Oh, sure. And I'll need to talk to the chief of police about my investigation. I've known him since I took this job with Luther. He's from Boston. We go to Patriots games together at times. But he'll need to be aware of your permission for me to investigate. I can pay a retainer now, Bonita said. You can bill me whatever's customary. Laszlo leaned forward and touched her hand. I could never charge you, Bonita. You've been like family to me while I've been here on the estate. She looked away. I'll talk to Luther, Laszlo said. Make some arrangement for time off that he owes me, but still keep control of the security through Nikki and Eugene. I'll find Betsy if it's possible. Is it bad? Bonita asked. Don't see any reason to even think that now. At this point, the statistics are in our favor. Most missing persons are alive and well. He picked up the mugs to take them to the kitchenette. We'll take my car. I don't want trouble from Luther for using his cars for private work, he said as he returned. Laszlo found nothing at the apartment that would indicate a pre-planned disappearance and no signs of abduction. Betsy's cell phone was on the dresser, but Bonita said she often did not carry it during the day. Bonita had not heard from Betsy by early the next morning, and Laszlo began by talking to the restaurant owner and manager. They had nothing substantial to offer. Fellow workers were mystified. Laszlo could find no suspects, male or female, who could reasonably have been involved in the disappearance. He decided to track down the girl Betsy lived with, Carrie Blanchard, he found her where she worked at a soft-serve ice cream shack near the beach. "'Have you heard from Betsy Thompson?' he asked over the counter. "'Who are you?' she asked. He explained, "'I can't talk now. I'm alone till ten. On break, then?' She shrugged. "'I'll wait,' he said, pointing to a stone bench backed up to a stone wall on the corner across the street next to a town trash can overflowing with soiled paper plates, crumpled napkins, and plastic drink holders with tops and straws sticking out. She seemed put out. "'Serve me up a dark chocolate almond and a waffle cone, please,' he said. Uh, "'325,' she said. 
He laid a five-dollar bill on the counter, waving off the change. She walked over to his bench twenty minutes later. It was a bright day, and she'd put on a baseball cap. It made seeing her eyes in shadow difficult to interpret, and he wished he'd had a better place to observe her carefully. "'I don't know where she is,' she said, standing in front of him. He asked her to sit. He decided not to take out his pocket notepad. He'd write comments as soon as he finished. He didn't want to ignite her hostility. "'When was the last time you saw Betsy?' she thought for a moment. Two nights ago. Early morning, really, when she got up to go to work. She sleeps in the front room. Did she seem upset in any way? I just saw her from my bed. Through the door, I went back to sleep. And you haven't heard or seen her since? She shook her head, no. You don't seem concerned that she's missing. I care, I guess. You don't sound like it. We're not friends. We live in the same apartment and split the cost. Do you like her? I don't spend enough time with her. Who does she hang out with? How would I know? You must have some idea. Hasn't someone come to the apartment for her? Only once when I was there. I was in the crapper with the door closed. A man or a woman? A man, I would think. She spent time getting ready, putting on a dress, fixing her hair. It was the only time I ever saw her do that. Did you hear his voice? A few words at the door. What did he sound like? I don't know. Was his voice deep or high? I couldn't tell. Did he have an accent? I didn't listen. Do you know where she usually went when she went out? To the restaurant, I think. And she worked out with her coach. And do you know the coach? He's my mother's cousin. Is there a romance there between Betsy and him? You're a weird man. She's a workout nut. That wouldn't rule out a boyfriend. I doubt she even screwed. They must have spent a lot of time together, the swim coach and her. He's been married, four children, and he's not exactly good-looking. Laszlo took out his notepad and wrote down the coach's name and contact information. She had said nothing further that might help find Betsy. She needed to get back to work, she said. Strange, because there was someone behind the counter and no customers for more than ten minutes. Obviously no rush. Certainly her disinterest in Betsy's disappearance didn't ring true. Betsy lived with her, and maybe she was pleased Betsy was gone. He'd have to talk to her again, more than once. The swim coach and trainer Mike Palmer was at the pool at the college athletic center. After Laszlo identified himself and asked to speak to Palmer, Palmer prescribed laps with different strokes for each of his students to be able to leave the session for a few minutes. Laszlo followed as Palmer led the way out a side door to the edge of a parking lot where the gym noise could not disturb them. It's terrible, Palmer said. What do you know? Nothing yet, Laszlo said. The police were here. They seem to think she ran away. Is that what you think? No. What do you think? Laszlo asked. Never. She was the most determined athlete I could remember training. She never missed training unless sick, and not often then. Running away was never in her mind. Was she ever distressed about her family? Did she have a friend, maybe? I think her mother wanted her to live with her. She manages the estate of Luther Pinelli. Uh, do you know Pinelli? Laszlo asked. No, I've trained one of his teammates for a while in the off-season, but I never saw Pinelli. 
Was there discord with the mother? I don't know the details. I thought it was about living in town. With Carrie, your niece? Yes, she's a second cousin. Carrie didn't seem distressed about Betsy's disappearance. Why do you think she wouldn't care? I, I, they didn't get along. Carrie loves a party. She thought Betsy was approved by the standards of today's youth. She thought Betsy looked down on her lifestyle. Is that what you thought? Betsy was judgmental, a prude? Betsy had no time to be judgmental. She wanted Olympic recognition for her career. She didn't think about Carrie enough to have opinions about her lifestyle. Did you ever see Betsy's boyfriends? Like I said, man, she didn't go with guys. How can you be sure? I train her, too. Besides coaching, she didn't like guys. She was a lesbian? Never that. Carrie thought a guy picked her up once at the apartment. Palmer shrugged. You never heard that? No. Do you like Betsy? Laszlo asked. Palmer paused longer than expected. Laszlo wondered if he loved her, but he didn't seem like a lech feeding on younger girls. She was one of the most honest kids I've ever known. Yes, I like her. And I like her dedication to her sport that far exceeded whatever I've given to my career. Did you date her? Laszlo asked. Palmer frowned and seemed to withdraw. I don't date. I have a family. It was a strong reaction, probably within reason, but close to protesting too much for what was a question other investigators had surely already asked him. Do you think she's alive? Palmer asked. Why wouldn't she be? Laszlo said, staring at Palmer. I just don't want harm to come to her. She's a special kid. Laszlo asked a few more routine questions. Palmer saw Betsy the day before yesterday for a training session. He could remember nothing unusual about her. He repeated that she had never missed a training session except twice for illness. He again said that he knew of no boyfriends. He did not think she was gay, only preoccupied. He would pray she was found soon. Betsy didn't have a car. She walked or bicycled wherever she needed to be. Laszlo returned to her apartment. Carrie, her roommate, was there. She confirmed Betsy's bicycle was at the apartment chained to a bike stand. Betsy would have walked to the apartment on the day she disappeared. Laszlo asked the way she would have walked. He went along the road, then on the street into town looking for signs of Betsy. At the restaurant, the owner and manager were insistent that Betsy always called if she could not come to work, or if she would even be late. They knew immediately something was wrong when she didn't show. Betsy had shown no signs of distress they were aware of. She was always intense, but they saw no signs of unhappiness. She seemed genuinely popular with the staff, and because of efficiency and a professional adult service demeanor, she was a top tip-getter. Chapter 43 Laszlo met the chief of police at a coffee shop in town, even Crandall. Laszlo liked him. A solid man physically, a kind man mentally, and a man made lonely by his dedication to his job and his constituency. Crandall listened to Laszlo's need to find the girl Betsy, who Crandall still thought was a runaway. It's awkward having you investigating. We're competent, Crandall said to Laszlo. Understaffed, Laszlo said. I've heard you were the best. Why did you leave the NYPD? I don't think I've ever asked you. 
Not one thing, Laszlo said. I just didn't want to spend my career buried in the injustices humans can do to one another. Why did they do it? And what was just punishment? And don't victims have rights? It got to me after a while. You happy doing security? Uh, So-so. I get tired of dealing with celebrities. Your PI license up to date? Laszlo nodded. Then I can't really prevent you from investigating. But don't withhold evidence and don't block any of my investigators. Are you pushing this even? I don't think she ran. I've known her from a distance. I know her mother well. She didn't need to get away. We're working on it. I'll put more men on it when we see if she shows up or not. Would you share the information with me, Laszlo asked. That'll be up to the discretion of the lead on the case, Ethel Blanchard. You know her? She's not the best, even. She's what I got at the moment. Laszlo returned to the compound. With Bonita Thomas, he created a list of everyone Betsy knew. Together they started calling and emailing each name on the list, asking for any clues about Betsy. Bonita called Betsy's college roommates, finding every possible contact related to school. By the end of the afternoon, they had reached 63. 54 were not available. They would persist tomorrow. Toward evening, Laszlo went again to the restaurant where Betsy worked and was last known to have been seen. He began interviewing staff he had not talked to before, and then people on the street and in neighboring restaurants and shops. The last time Betsy was seen was about 9.30 p.m. when she cashed out at the restaurant, leaving in her nighttime leather-brown waitress dress and white collar and cuffs and white plastic-thin belt with a nickel buckle. She was wearing white Nike cross trainers. No one suspected anything abnormal in Betsy's behavior. She did not seem to be planning a disappearance. He had pictures of Betsy, but no one remembered seeing her after she left the restaurant. Laszlo asked in the shops and houses. He came to Madeline's yarn shop. He had known Madeline in New York before she had left her husband and moved with her daughter to take advantage of the seasonal summer trade. Business was good, she said. I didn't see her that night, Madeline said, looking at the pictures. You saw her other nights? I never spoke to her. But you saw her? On and off. How often? Twice last month, maybe three times. What time? Always after closing, with most of the lights off inside. It was easy to see out then. She always sat across the street away from the streetlight on that stone border around the base of the oak tree. Was anyone else with her? No. Did you see her leave? I never saw her move. I just got a glimpse of her when the light was right and then went back to work. Did she have a purpose for sitting alone on a side street in the dark after most of the businesses are closed? She was too far away for me to know what she was doing. I assumed she was waiting for someone, I guess, to go home after work. She always had on her waitress uniform. Did you see a bicycle? She rode a bicycle to and from work sometimes. I never saw a bicycle. I heard a car once. I was in the back unpacking stock. I heard a car leave and I saw she wasn't sitting there anymore. You didn't see it? No, and I'm not sure she even got in. She was just gone. 
Could someone have gotten out of the car and they walked away together? Sure. But the car wasn't around? No. Madeline looked determined to help. Try across the street. There's a private house. A widow and her sister live there full time. The widow and sister were at home. They remembered Betsy when they saw the pictures. Not in uniform, Laszlo asked. No, they said in unison. How often? Not often, they said. Maybe three or four times total. Not the last couple of nights, or weeks even. And they remembered a car, a white car, small. But they didn't remember details, and they didn't know makes of cars. They had not seen a license plate. The car stopped, but they didn't see the girl get in. Yes, they did think she did get in. Bonita Thomas knew nothing of a white car and didn't remember her daughter ever mentioning a white car or even having a reason to wait for someone. Laszlo went back to the roommate, who seemed even more disinterested in Betsy than she had on his first interview with her. She'd never heard of a white car. Laszlo talked with the chief. I still don't think she ran away even. She doesn't fit the type, and she didn't have a reason. He let him know about the white car. We've checked security cameras in all the stores and at the restaurant, Crandall said. All the surrounding gas stations, convenience stores. We've seen her leaving the restaurant almost every night. She was recorded leaving after work on the day before and the night she was reported missing. It appeared routine. Did you see her get on her bicycle when she left, Laszlo said. Even called a colleague in the office on his cell. Kyle says she didn't have her bicycle that night. But she did on the other night she was recorded. Even asked again. Yes, he said. This was one of the rare nights she didn't leave on her bicycle. That gelled with what Laszlo knew. She could have met someone. Possible, Crandelson. I'll keep working on it. We're going to work the beaches in the morning at first light, Crandall said. It's where a lot of young couples go in the evenings to be alone, secure from prying eyes, not hidden by those rocks and dunes, retaining walls. Need help, Laszlo asked. As many as you can round up. We'll set up a station at the parking lot near Whitehall Road. A few hours later, when Laszlo entered Bonita Thomas's office, she had her head down on the desk resting on folded arms. She looked up. Her eyes were red. Rumpled Kleenex littered the desk. Is it time to talk? Laszlo asked. She nodded. Laszlo pulled up a chair and took out his notebook. I told Luther. He was upset about Betsy missing. He asked me to investigate full-time, if it was all right with you. I've got Eugene to do the driving, and William's been hired to take over most of the security with Nikki. Laszlo paused. She stared at him as if not comprehending. Are you sure this time is right? Laszlo asked. She took another Kleenex from a box in a top drawer and blew her nose. I'm not thinking well, she said. She sat up straight. I can come back. Set a time. No, no, now it's okay, she said. Have the police been by again? Last night, two of them. They're still treating this as a missing person. She's missing, but she didn't run away, Laszlo said. Was she happy at school? As happy as you could expect, I think, Bonita said. But she never talked about it to me. Laszlo sighed. I need you to be straight with me, Bonita. I can't find Betsy when her mother persists in being vague. 
Bonina made notes on a calendar before responding. I'll try, Duba. I'll do my best. Did she ever date when she stayed with you? She stayed only one night mostly, rarely two when she came. She never left for a date. Why didn't she stay here with you full time? It's not that far. It must have been cheaper, even if you bought her a car or a scooter or something for transportation. She had her own agenda. Headstrong, really. You know what I don't understand? You said she was happy, but everything tells me you didn't get along well at all. Why? There was nothing that would make her run. She does well in school. She's proud to be on the swim team competing at the state level with hopes of competing nationally. She wants to be a nurse. Does that sound like unhappy? We never saw her much around the compound here, Laszlo said, swimming sometimes. She never ate with staff. She always left by the back gate. Why was that, Laszlo asked. She said she was shy around celebrities. She said she didn't know what to say. It embarrassed her. But there was Darwin, Granny, the other staff. Did she know any of them well? Like them? She stayed to herself, Duba. Cooked for herself in my kitchen, studied, and swam. Yes, she did like this pool. I think it's the only reason she came out here. Why was that, Bonito? Why didn't you get along? I don't know. We drifted apart. After the divorce? I think a little before that. Did she use drugs, Bonita? I know she tried pot on at least one occasion. Never at home. Before we came here. And it wasn't regular. She's a proud athlete. She's meticulous about what she puts into her body. What did you argue about? What irritated you about her? She wouldn't apply herself to anything practical, anything she could count on for the future. She was always about swimming. You said she did well in school, Laszlo said. She was on academic probation once a long time ago, but she turned it around. She has a solid B average. And that was all? She was secretive about some things. I never knew all that she was doing. So she could have been dating, hanging out with friends you didn't know about. Bonita paused. Yes. Did she have her own room here? Yes. Can I see it? Laszlo walked with Benita to a second-floor bedroom. There was only a bed and a dresser with nothing on top. No chairs, no art or posters, no radio or TV. Nothing personal. And without clutter or dust or discarded clothes, they walked back down the stairs. I'll be back often, Bonita, as things develop, Laszlo said. Here's my cell. Call me if you hear anything from Betsy. And let me know what the police tell you. I spoke to Athel Blanchard, the lead on the case. I'll keep talking to them, but I want to know what they're telling you. He paused at the door. She remained standing a few feet away, near her desk. It's not good, is it? she asked. He paused, looking at her, unable to answer. Chapter 44 the next morning, the police directed a search of the beach. Darwin asked Helen and Coral to help contact more than 25 of their friends in Betsy's age group, most of whom knew her, to join in the Saturday search. Three schools in the neighborhood counties asked students to help. 
law enforcement personnel were brought in from neighboring towns to aid in door-to-door searches within a five-mile radius of Betsy's apartment. Volunteers from firefighters to social workers and off-duty hospital personnel were organized for a systematic search of two woods in area parks. And the early morning search of two segments of shorefront totaling more than 2.8 miles called for citizen volunteers. The morning was damp with intermittent light rain. Police organizers segmented groups of searchers for different areas. Darwin joined a group with Helen and Coral Malvern and many people he knew. They were formed into lines a few feet apart for searches that methodically progressed north along the shore from water to the road. Seven hours later, exhausted, Darwin took Helen and Coral home. They sat around a kitchen table as Mrs. Malvern served hot cocoa and tuna fish sandwiches on white bread. Did you find anything? Mrs. Malvern asked. Garbage bags full of stuff, Coral said. The police have to sort through it, record where it was found. They found a woman's thin wristwatch. Helen thought Betsy's father had given it to her. It was watertight and had a chronometer. Betsy's roommate thought she had seen Betsy wear it too, Darwin said. So they think she's dead, Mrs. Malvern said. They don't say that, Coral said. She doesn't deserve this, Helen said. She has almost nothing stuck in that public school. Well, your father never billed her for that ankle sprain. Paid out of pocket for the MRI, Mrs. Malvern said with irritation. She never expressed any gratitude. I doubt she knew he didn't bill, Helen said. And the money you lent her, did she pay it back, Coral asked. You lent her money, Mrs. Malvern asked Helen. Helen said nothing. Darwin stared with interest. He didn't know Helen knew Betsy. I ask you a question, Mrs. Malvern said. Tell her, Coral said. It wasn't just a few dollars either. She was working herself into a spiral to break even, Helen said. Competing cost, more money than you'd expect. It could only end in disaster. I wanted to help. Didn't her family support her, Mrs. Malvern asked. I think so, Helen said. Her mother as much as she could. They're low middle class, and she had expenses that she couldn't tell her parents about. What does that mean, Mrs. Malvern asked. She used drugs? I don't think so, Helen answered. Trips, expensive trips, only for a few days. Where? I don't know. How much was it, Helen? Mrs. Malvern asked again. Helen remained silent. Thousands, Coral said. You lent her thousands, Mrs. Malvern said. I took it from my account, Helen said. Your father doesn't give you an allowance to support waifs, Mrs. Malvern said. She's not a waif, Helen said. She uses it on drugs, Coral said. All the kids in her school do it. Some push, I know. Do you ever see or do drugs? Darwin asked Coral. Coral didn't answer, not meeting Darwin's gaze. I have ice cream. Peach, chocolate almond, vanilla, Mrs. Malvern said. She used the money only for her swimming, Helen said. Bullshit, Coral said. Coral, Mrs. Malvern said. It's a lie, Coral said. It's true, Helen said. She is a beautiful swimmer. She might go to the Olympics. Stop arguing, Mrs. Malvern said. You're an asshole, Coral said to Helen. Stop it, Mrs. Malvern said again. It was wasting money, Coral said. It wasn't your money, Helen retorted. I can't stand your bickering, Mrs. Malvern said.
The girls sank into silence. Darwin finished his chocolate, thanked Mrs. Malvern, said goodbye to Coral and Helen, and drove back to Luther's mansion alone. Darwin waited until Laszlo returned after ten that night. Darwin knocked on his door. What's up? Laszlo said in a bathrobe and slippers. I heard an argument about drug usage between Coral and Helen Malvern. Helen lent money to Betsy, and Helen said it was for swimming meat trip expenses. Coral claimed it was drug money, but she hadn't seen Betsy using drugs and had nothing to support her accusations. Come on in, Laszlo said. No, I just wanted you to know. I need to talk to them separately. Hey, can you arrange it? You need me there, Darwin asked. It might help. What do you think? You know, I'd, I'd rather not, Darwin said. It's complicated, but I think they will be more straightforward with you alone. We've got a history. Who's this we? Laszlo asked. Helen and me and Coral. What history? Laszlo said. I've turned down Coral's come-ons, and I've liked Helen enough to share some private thoughts. You after her? Laszlo smiled. Uh, yes and no. She's been a sort of friend in tough times. You and women, Laszlo laughed. What does that mean? Darwin said. I think you're right. I'll talk to them separately without you. You coming in? I'm wiped out, Darwin said, but thanks. Late the next afternoon after the search, Darwin was at the mansion when Laszlo asked if he had time to help. They sat down at the kitchen staff table. Bonita insists Betsy was a straight arrow, Laszlo said, that men didn't interest her, that she was determined to swim competitively and go to college for a degree in nursing. But Bonita doesn't have it right from what I can tell. Betsy rarely spent time with her mother. The sign-in and out sheets at the gate show that, and I don't think there was any reason for Betsy to sneak in or out. So she rarely saw her mother, Darwin asked. Bonita implied they got along well, little disagreement, she said. Thinking, Darwin doodled with his forefinger on the table. I'd like to go back to the village, Laszlo said. You know most of the kids there, though she worked with her roommate. I didn't know a roommate at all, Darwin said. But you could establish trust with others I can't. I think there is someone, maybe many, who could tell us about Betsy's life. Is there still a possibility she ran away? Always, I guess. That's what the sheriff thinks is most possible still. But I don't get a feeling she was in a mindset to run. Let's start, Darwin said. The restaurant staff was eager to be involved again. They liked Betsy well enough, but they obviously liked the excitement of the disappearance, too. Laszlo asked tough questions. Darwin often followed up with questions to erase any suspicion of accusation, using his youth and at times his acquaintance to ease any tensions. But little was discovered until Sammy, a small, wiry girl with black hair, knew of a boy who was crazy over Betsy. He followed her around, bought her gifts. Did she ever date him? Laszlo asked. Well, I, I, I don't think so. I, I only talked to her a couple times, and, and she was irritated mostly. Afraid? I, I, I don't think that. Who is he? Darwin asked. I, I don't know. Did you see him? A, a couple of times. What did he look like? Oh, he had, he had shaggy, long blonde hair, skinny. I never saw him up close. And Betsy never mentioned she knew his name. Uh, he must not have gone to school around here. We know all the kids. 
The owner-operator of the coffee shop across from the restaurant knew the boy. He had seen him a few times hanging around the coffee shop, watching Betsy across the street working outside tables in good weather. Did you ever speak to him? Lasso asked. No reason to. He never came in and never did anything wrong that I could see. And you don't know his name? I don't. But I've seen him out of town. I'm almost sure he works at that gas and grocery at the corner where the state and coast roads cross. Jefferson's? Laszlo asked. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the one. I'm almost sure. Laszlo and Darwin found the boy, Clinton Jefferson, maybe 14 or 15 years old, working the cash register at the convenience store. Laszlo asked if they could talk, and the boy called in the back for his mother, who came out to watch the store. They went outside, standing under the roof overhang at the corner of the building to keep out the rain. Laszlo explained who he was. Clinton said he knew Darwin, but Darwin did not remember him. Clinton knew Betsy was missing. He looked distressed and ready to cry. Did you know Betsy? Laszlo asked. Yes, sir. Well? Clinton didn't respond. When did you last see her? Darwin asked. Clinton looked down. Do you know anything about her disappearance? Laszlo said. Clinton said nothing. Laszlo waited for the boy to look up again. Can you help us find her? Could you do that? Clinton looked away. Are you afraid? I don't know nothing about it, Clinton said. When did you last see her? I, I, I don't know. Yesterday, a few days ago, weeks? Days, maybe. Do you go out with her on dates? Darwin asked. He was too young to interest a girl like Betsy, but Laszlo saw advantage in trying to determine how he saw his attachment to Betsy. Clinton was trembling, tears running down his face. You'll do best to speak to us, Laszlo said. I'll have to send the police soon. They won't be gentle. Clinton wiped his nose with his sleeve. We've never dated, he said. But you wanted to, Darwin asked. Clinton didn't respond. Witnesses say you often follow Betsy around, Laszlo said. Is that true? Clinton sobbed again briefly. Is it true? Clinton nodded once. Because you loved her? Clinton sobbed again. When is the last time you saw her? Tell us that. Clinton paused. Five, five days ago. Where? It was, it was in town. Did she talk to you? I, I, I don't think she, she saw me. I, I stayed out of sight. Where did she go? I, I, I don't know. When was it? A at night, after she left the restaurant. She walked down the street. She didn't ride her bicycle? No. When did you stop following her? I wasn't following her. I told you. I stayed behind some bushes to keep out of sight. So she wouldn't see you? Darwin asked. Clinton nodded. When did you see her last? She turned the corner. And you followed? Clinton nodded again. But I stopped when I heard a car door slam. She got in a car? Clinton nodded. What kind? Don't know. Two door? He nodded again. Color? White, I think. Um, it was dark out. But you didn't see her get in, Laszlo said. Heard it. Had this ever happened before, Darwin said. Clinton nodded. When? A few weeks ago, Clinton said. 
Many times? Only once. It didn't happen every night? Clinton shook his head no. Have you ever seen the car anywhere else here at the store? No. Did you ever see her meet anybody ever? No. But you followed her a lot? She rode her bike. I didn't follow her then. Laszlo said to Clinton he'd be questioned again, that it was wise to tell the truth, hide nothing. Laszlo gave him a card with his phone number. In the car, Darwin drove as Laszlo made notes. He's hiding something? Darwin asked. It's hard to tell. I don't think he'd harm her, though. Will he be a suspect? Probably. The lead investigator is incompetent, Ethel Blanchard. I've known her for years. She'll jump to conclusion, badger that poor kid for days. He was stalking Betsy, Darwin said. I think that's what he's afraid of, being accused of stalking, Laszlo said. Laszlo talked to Helen at her parents without Darwin. She was by the pool in a two-piece bathing suit. She was athletic, thin and muscular. Tanline said she spent a lot of time in the sun. Her blonde hair was bleached almost white from exposure. He'd seen her only a few times before, usually with Darwin, but he'd never talked to her. She feigned pleasantness at seeing him, but she seemed reticent to talk and definitely distressed at Betsy's disappearance. She'd felt something strong for Betsy. He wondered if Helen were gay. Do you know her well? Laszlo asked after they'd taken seats and poolside chairs at the circular table, shaded by a red and yellow striped umbrella. Helen had given him a bottle of water and taken one for herself. No, not really. But you saw her often. Helped her financially? She sprained an ankle, fell off her bicycle. I stopped to help. She was in pain, so I brought her to my father. She had pukey insurance and a whopping deductible. Father treated her for free. And you gave her money? Yes, I liked her. Did she have boyfriends? I don't think so. But you spent time with Betsy. What did you do? I watched her swim sometimes. We'd go out to eat after, something light. Once we went to an art museum on a Sunday. Art history is my major. I'm planning a career. Did Betsy like art? Was she an artist? Not an artist. And I don't think she had a passion for anything but her swimming. It took her hours every day to keep her body in peak condition. Do you know any of her friends? As I said, she was very occupied with her swimming. I don't think she had many friends. Except for you? Oh, for a short time. What happened? We drifted apart. Amicably? Of course. Why would you ask that? Laszlo thanked Helen for her time and gave her his card. I hope you find her soon, Helen said. Chapter 45 Laszlo traveled to St. Louis to talk to Betsy's father, Samuel Thomas. To gauge the reaction to the surprise of his visit, Laszlo didn't contact him before he arrived. Thomas was in his office at a national trucking company, wearing a rumpled gray suit with a white shirt and a red paisley tie. He was a vice president of the division. At Thomas's request, Laszlo took a seat in the chair in front of his desk. Laszlo explained his purpose— he saw no irritation in Thomas, only concern and a need to know more. "'Have you heard from Betsy since she disappeared?' Laszlo asked. "'No, not a word. 
Do you hear from her often? Yes, about once a week. She calls or emails. When's the last time you heard from her? It's been a while. Can you remember when? Uh, probably two weeks. I can check. Later. Were you close to your daughter after the divorce? I think closer than ever before the divorce, actually. It's difficult to get a clear picture of her activities, especially her dating. Did she ever talk to you about her friends? She is a serious athlete. She got even more intense after the divorce. But she dated boys? At times, at least. But she's shy, and she wants to be successful as a swimmer. Did she ever use drugs? What kind of drugs? Any kind. Pain pills, I think. Nothing serious. As I said, she's disciplined. Your former wife thought she tried marijuana. I believe her. She's honest and wouldn't say it if it weren't true. But I don't believe it was ever an addiction for Betsy. Not more than a few times at most. Did she use enhancing drugs for her competitive swimming? I'm sure she didn't. She was against it, thought it immoral. But how can I really be sure? Where would she have gotten them, though? And there was nothing different about her over the last few months. She was happy. The last time I talked to her, she wouldn't say exactly. She hinted she was seeing someone special she cared about. A man? I think so. Why would you ask? She's not gay. But it could have been a girlfriend, a mentor. I don't know. Could you guess who it might have been? I asked her twice. She wouldn't say. Just that she had to be very secretive. Do you think this person was older? When I thought about it later, I thought that might be possible. Older people might require secrecy. You mean being involved with Betsy might affect his or her career or reputation? I could tell she had admiration for whoever it was. Could the person have been married? I don't think she would have been involved with a married person. Her coach. It seems he spent a lot of time with her. I don't know. I only met him once, just to say hello. Again, I guess it's possible, but it doesn't seem like Betsy would allow it to happen. She is religious in an offbeat way, and I can't imagine her being involved with her coach. He choked up as he was talking. Sorry to have to put you through this, Laszlo said sincerely. Mr. Thomas shrugged, without looking at Laszlo, feigning unconcerned about the obvious serious effects Betsy's disappearance had on him. Still, Laszlo said, why would she need to be secretive with you about an affair, if it was an affair? She never approved of my recent marriage. I dated while still married to her mother. She thought it was a double standard, called me a hypocrite. So why wouldn't she confide? She lost respect for me, I think, marrying someone else. And that's all? The distance made it worse. Never being able to speak in person to each other. Do Betsy and your ex-wife still get along? Bonita? It's hard to say. Betsy made the decision to stay in New York with her and not to live with me, so I haven't seen much of either of them. Did you invite Betsy to visit? Yes, many times, but she doesn't like my new wife. She knew there would be tension, and I think she's probably right. Do you know of anyone who might harm her? Thomas paused for a second. I don't. I've thought about it a lot. She is not overly friendly, but I don't think she is disliked by many, if at all. She did say once she thought a boy was following her around. She knew him, but she wasn't afraid and thought there was no harm in it. 
Laszlo reached in his folder. He showed Mr. Thomas a photo of a sales catalog of watches. He pointed to one. Betsy's roommate identified a watch like this as one like Betsy had, Laszlo said. The police found it on the beach on the eastern shore. They traced the sale to the inventory in a jewelry store on the island, but found no record of the purchaser. Have you seen it before? Yes. I sent her one for her birthday from a catalog. It was supposed to be state-of-the-art for swimmers. Is there any way you could identify the watch you bought her? I sent in the warranty. The watch was shipped to me, and I sent it to Betsy. I have the file. He stood. I'll be right back. While he was gone, Laszlo called Ethel Blanchard, the lead investigator. Was there a product number or something like that on the watch, he asked. He wrote down her answer as Thomas walked back in carrying a single file folder. Here it is, Thomas said. Laszlo compared the identifying numbers. It's not the watch they found, he said. They've been sidetracked. I don't think Betsy wore the watch often. Most of her swimming was with a coach who always timed her laps. She liked her coach, Laszlo asked. It was becoming clear Betsy's coach had a significant role in her life. He did everything for her, took her to meets sometimes. She didn't pay her own way to meets? Not to my knowledge. I know he made special training schedules for her exclusively. Beyond the usual? He saw great potential in her. Laszlo thanked Thomas. Give my best to Bonita, Thomas said. We don't talk much, but she is a good woman. Laszlo silently agreed. Bonita was a good woman and a good human being who didn't deserve this grief. After Laszlo exited the building, he called Ethel Blanchard and told her the watch found on the beach was not Betsy's. Chapter 46 Laszlo interviewed town residents who might have seen Betsy when Bonita Thomas called. They found her. They want me to identify the body. I need your help, Duba. The body had been discovered in a narrow but deep stream in a public park that was closed dark to dawn and patrolled only once or twice a night. A runner using a riverside path for a routine morning run discovered the body 50 yards downstream from a walking bridge with waist-high railings that was 200 feet from an access road among evergreens. The runner saw only a shoe and a leg under a surface of a shallow that had less opacity than the muddy stream center. From the small size of Betsy, Laszlo knew a man could have easily carried the body alone from the road to the bridge, although most women would need to have an accomplice. The decomposed body had been in the water for some time, but there were bruises and cuts on the torso and limbs, and the nose was crushed. The front teeth were missing, exposed by an upper lip lacerated and hanging loose by an attachment half an inch above the edge of the lip line. The photos of the crime scene and the removal of the body showed what appeared to be a hasty attempt to weight the body with stones in the sleeves and rocks and the main part of a man's shirt with the arms tied around the corpse. A grapefruit-sized rock found in the shallows was thought to be the rock that the current finally jarred loose so the leg was released to rise to a point visible by the runner. At the morgue, Laszlo took photos of the shirt with his mobile phone to possibly aid in identifying the owner, if not Betsy, and requested notification of the autopsy results. The sun had gone down hours before Laszlo took Bonita to her place on the mansion grounds, she had lost her crisp, authoritative walk, and her shoulders slumped. 
She kept rubbing the side of her neck with her right hand, seemingly without purpose. She unlocked the door. I'm going to stay the night, Laszlo said. I can sleep on the sofa in the office. I'm perfectly fine, she said. You're not, he said. No one would be. Chapter 47 Darwin left the lab a little after 7 p.m. Near the security reception desk in the lobby, he saw Sweeney sitting on a bench against the wall near the door. Anything wrong? Darwin asked. Oh, no. Do you have time to talk? He needed to get home, but would always be glad to see Sweeney, and would almost always make time for her. Adele, on me, she said. She held his arm with both her hands as they walked her shoulder-strap bag swinging at her side. "'You look a little agitated,' Darwin said as he stared across the booth table at Sweeney. She was without makeup, which always made her more beautiful in his mind. She'd gained weight since she'd been able to dismantle her humiliation from Luther's treatment of her. She was living in a penthouse in the city, and her new direction and career to energize her fan base and succeed in a new, broader genre of music had improved her health.' mental and physical. I saw Melanie Pearlstein at Macy's the other day. I'm surprised you remembered her. It was so traumatic for you. Not even a scab on the wounds you've taken from Luther for so long. She's getting married, did you know? He didn't. He'd been careful not to know much about Pearlstein. You talked to her? She's marrying a Jewish doctor, a lot older. That's what her mother wanted. Did Pearlstein seem happy? I never could tell how she felt about things. I never spent much time with her. Just a few times I saw her at the mansion. It was strange, Darwin said. She always felt so strong about things she kept deeply buried inside of her. She asked about you. She said she'd never really gotten over the breakup. In Macy's, he frowned. All this intimacy standing in lingerie. It was jewelry, but we had coffee together in the restaurant. Why? She insisted. She wanted me to tell her about you. Darwin smiled. I hope you were prudent. I told her every juicy detail I could remember, and made up a few, too. Her eyes sparkled. Sweeney was still the best friend Darwin had. Understanding, fun to be with, loyal. Some things never needed to be said. All the things most celebrities could never be, she was. And he valued who she'd become. She said she heard you were getting married. She wondered if you were happy. Said she was surprised when I told her who Helen Malvern was. Surprised? She didn't know anything about Helen until I told her. What did you tell her that surprised her? That Helen was a socialite, a deb, garnished invites from the most prominent to the best of everything, politicians, diplomats, the unfathomably rich. Helen's got a little more to her than access to the in-group, Darwin said, slightly offended. I didn't know that side of her. She's kind and caring, Sweeney. It may not be obvious to you, but it's there. Trust me. What does she want to accomplish in her life, Sweeney asked. She loves art. And social prominence? What's wrong with that? It's her life, and it helps her achieve her dream to provide beautiful objects for all to enjoy. She believes art is a cultural necessity for societal advancement. Sweeney looked at him for many seconds. 
Is it your life? She finally asked. This life Helen wants to live? A waitress served and refreshed coffee. Sweeney's question irritated him. Of course, he said. No, really, Darwin. Are you ready for a Manhattan boutique practice with weekends in the Hamptons? I'll always be the physician I want, and that's not boutique. And I guarantee you Helen wants that for me, too. Don't make her into something she's not, Sweeney. It was just a question. I don't like it, he said, unsure why he was so annoyed. Why was Sweeney so blinded to the real Helen? Why are you upset? Sweeney asked. He took a slow sip of coffee. He hadn't touched his sandwich. Helen has special qualities I've never seen in others, he said. I got to know her well after Betsy's disappearance. I saw qualities that I hadn't seen before. Sweeney said nothing and ate her sandwich, avoiding Darwin's glances. What's with this, Sweeney? Why did you come uptown to tell me about Pearlstein? Sweeney paused. I just wanted to be sure you were happy. Well, I am. I'm ecstatic. Sweeney set her jaw and stared at her wine glass for a long time. That's crazy, she finally said. I've known you for too long. You don't love this girl. I have no idea why you're getting married. He wiped his mouth with a paper napkin from his lap. He placed it on the table and signaled the waitress for a check. You've gone too far, Sweeney. I do love Helen Malvern, and I'll have a long and happy life with her. You'd be smart to think about it, in my opinion. Is it yours or Pearlstein's? Sweeney didn't hesitate. Both, if you must know. She still cares for you, you know. We both don't see how it could ever work out with Helen Malvern. Darwin threw enough money on the table to cover the check in a gratuity. Well, keep your opinions to yourself from now on. He left Sweeney staring at him. Let her get her own transportation. She hadn't been angry when he left. Only he was angry. Her eyes looked sad. He wondered if it was because he was getting married, or because he was getting married to Helen. If Helen was the cause, Sweeney should mind her own affairs. Helen was off limits now. Darwin went to his apartment and tried to study, but his concentration was lost, and he went to bed falling into a restless sleep when the doorbell rang. The bedside clock said 11.14 p.m. He opened the door a crack with the chain still locked. It was Sweeney. Let me come in, she said. Go away, Sweeney. I know you have the best intentions, but I can't deal with unfair criticism right now. He could see only one of her eyes peering at him through the crack in the door. She'd been crying. Why are you having such a hard time dealing with it, she said. After all the hard things we've talked about through the years, why can't you deal with this? Why now? Maybe because you know I'm right. That's not appropriate, Sweeney. It's essential. Don't come back. Don't close me out, Darwin. I'm trying to help. You're not helping, he said. Her persistence was unwarranted. She was wrong to question Helen's value. My God, Sweeney was night and day different from Helen. Night and day. How could she judge? He closed the door, filled with more resentment than he could control. Chapter 48 Laszlo's investigation continued, but there was no progress in solving the cause of Betsy's death. 
any hurt for Bonita, as he watched her fighting to control the inevitable effects of Betsy's death on her. Are the police really doing everything they can? Bonita asked. I believe they are. Ethel Blanchard wasn't competent, and I asked the chief to place someone more experienced on the team. He did that. They've come up with solid ideas. The death was non-accidental, caused by blunt trauma to the head and upper body and probably by strangulation, done by someone with strength. She must have suffered, Bonita said. Probably not for long. She went unconscious quickly, he said emphatically, although he wasn't sure it was true. And terrified, knowing everything would be taken from her, Bonita continued. There is no evidence they could find that might identify the assailant, he said. She was in the stream for some hours. Everything useful seems to have been washed away. How will they identify suspects? Look for eyewitnesses. Investigate all who knew Betsy. I'm working hard on that, too. Trust me, I'll find it if it's there. Bonita's opaque eyes marked her withdrawal from the world. Laszlo thought about Bonita without stop now. He wanted to get her living again, back to her old drive and excitement, try to make her see that life was worth living, and he hoped he might be part of her recovery and her future. He felt good around her, even in her time of stress. Chapter 49 The mid-afternoon sky had rare clouds. Helen sat with Mrs. Malvern and Coral outside the Malvern home on manicured grass in a lounge chair for her almost daily visit with her mother about the wedding. Mrs. Malvern had been under the weather and was wrapped in a robe. She had on hiking boots without socks. She held a thermos of hot tea. Helen sat on a wrought iron bench, Coral on a metal folding chair, straddling the seat, her front to the back, chin on her crossed arms that were on the back of the chair. Darwin was not happy, Helen said. What about, Coral asked. I was talking to Mother, Helen said sharply. Her mother said nothing. Unusual, but the medications had made her slow to think and respond. I told him I didn't want a wedding ruined by a celebrity spectacle. Tell me what he said, Coral said. I think it's best you stood up for what you want, her mother said. You don't want to start marriage with misunderstandings. Darwin is so good to you, Coral said. He loves you. And I love him, Helen said. But she saw Coral's glance, read her disbelief, as if Coral knew her dreams occasionally still included Andrew Townsend, not always pleasant dreams, but always filled with what she remembered as his attention to her looks and his need for her. And Andrew still occasionally pursued her. She had gone out with him in the last month, as in I told you I'm still attractive to dull the pain of her Leonard Stapleton breakup. Just that girl singer, her mother said. The football player, too, mother. Both attract the press and the inevitable crowds, and it's worse when they're in public together. That wouldn't happen at the wedding. Who would know they're coming, Coral said. You don't know, Helen said angrily. It would be leaked, for the publicity. You ought to know what publicity means to them. Your two cousins will stand for Darwin, her mother said. One of them can be best man. Darwin wants Luther Pinelli as the best man, Helen said, and Laszlo Forgash, if Pinelli doesn't show, 
and that's a real possibility that even Darwin admits. Laszlo, said her mother. A security guard. I think he's Hungarian. First generation. I don't know his last name. Is that wise? I mean, a security guard? I don't think it's wise, mother. But Darwin won't back down. Darwin said Laszlo had treated him like a son, and he's proud to have him. Be sure this Laszlo can afford to dress, her mother said. Darwin has the money now, mother. His inheritance and the app he's developed has made him rich, without depending on the inheritance that's been invested. I know, dear, but money can't buy taste. Darwin is not an asshole, Coral said. Don't use that language, mother said. From habit, mother glanced around to see if someone had overheard. Darwin wanted to invite Sweeney Pale to the rehearsal dinner, Helen said. I said, definitely not. You can't make exceptions, her mother said. They're so crude. Luther Pinelli will be bad enough. You don't even know them, Coral said to her mother. I know of them. Well, it's done, Helen interjected. We won't have to worry about it anymore. I won't invite Sweeney Pale. At least there won't be two celebrities. I'd worry about keeping your man. You treat him like dog shit, Coral said. Coral, her mother said. Let's go, Helen said to Coral, smoldering at her sister's crudity, but uncomfortable, too, that Coral was always taking Darwin's side in ways that were more intimate than befit a potential unmarried sister-in-law. Wedding plans were monitored by Mrs. Malvern at a luncheon meeting with Helen, Darwin, and the wedding coordinator, Flavia Lassiter. The invitations were complete. Flavia passed around the list for last-minute additions. Granny's name was there. Mrs. Thomas, and Laszlo Forgash was there, too. "'Where's Sweeney Pale? Darwin asked the coordinator. Helen glanced up briefly at her mother, whose eyes sent a message of apprehension back. The coordinator did not look to Darwin. I took her off the list. I advised against a celebrity of that status at the service or at the reception. "'I'd like an invitation sent,' Darwin said." Think about it, Darwin, Helen said. Just imagine what having a press corps hanging around would do to the ambience we're trying to create in the Hamptons. Sweeney wouldn't bring press. But she has no control over paparazzi, eager for that shot that might make them $10,000 or more. Helen looked to her mother again, whose gaze held steady, indicating encouragement. We'll have to take that risk, Darwin said. It's probable that Sweeney can't come anyway, but I want her invited. Mrs. Malvern touched her linen napkin to her mouth before she spoke. It's not possible, Darwin. It is possible. You've been on the outs with Sweeney Pale for months, Helen said. You didn't speak to her until last week. You told me. Sweeney is, and always will be, my friend. And she's my cousin's wife. I hope my best man. And I want her invited, Darwin said. The coordinator stopped twirling a raw oyster around in its shallow well on an oyster plate. The guest list is limited for practical reasons, she said. The church is small. The reception hall, since we're having a sit-down dinner, can only handle a few of the hundreds who would like to come. Why don't you invite her to the rehearsal dinner instead of the wedding? She's not in the wedding, Helen said. You wouldn't have any objections, would you? The coordinator said, looking to Mrs. Malvern. I don't control the rehearsal dinner list, 
Mrs. Malvern said, even though Darwin had left all the details to her. If paparazzi are a concern, and if Sweeney can come, there are ways she can participate without being recognized, Darwin said. She practices all the time, slipping past the press. Helen was breathing fast and deeply. What are you going to do, Darwin? Call off the wedding? Darwin's face flushed. He had the right to invite whom he wanted. If that's what it comes to, call it off, he said. Helen sobbed. Oh, that's so petty. I never thought you could be so cruel, Mrs. Malvern said to Darwin. The coordinator spoke up. I want to propose Mrs. Kreider from First Episcopal as the organist for the ceremony, but not for the reception. Oh, shut up, Helen said. Darwin stood up by placing his napkin deliberately on the side of his plate. If you ladies will excuse me, I have other things to do. He left. He was busy on a hospital rotation for the next few days, and he heard nothing from Helen or Mrs. Malvern, and he refused to make contact, even when he had time. Then he received a message on his phone from the coordinator saying Sweeney Pale had been sent an invitation. It soothed his anger, but it took two more days for him to call Helen to tell her Luther had agreed to be best man. The silence confirmed what he knew about her feelings of having Luther in the wedding party. I've asked Laszlo to be groomsman, he said. You can fill in the other spots with your cousins and friends. Is this the way it's going to be? Helen said in a petulant tone, cold and distant, then calling me with surprises you know I'll hate. It's going to take me a while to get over it, Darwin said. You were wrong, Darwin. Admit it. He was silent for many seconds and finally spoke. Let's put it behind us, he said. We'll go to church on Sunday, together as if it never happened. She uttered a short and breathy laugh. Sunday? Not today? Not tomorrow? You can't just keep punishing me. I wasn't wrong, you know. Be a gentleman. His resentment flared. Be a lady, he said. You shit, she said. Goodbye to you, he said but she had already hung up. He still held on to the feeling that it would be fine if he never saw her or her mother again, but he thought their arguments were unavoidable at weddings and would eventually pass. Chapter 50 Sweeney Pale came to the wedding without a ripple of paparazzi or press of any ilk. Darwin stood next to Laszlo, a head shorter, as best man. Luther failed to show. He could not be found or contacted. Helen had her youngest cousin stand in as a groomsman, so all of her seven bridesmaids would have a paired escort. Mendelssohn's wedding march began with a flare of brass from the ensemble of eight musicians hired to complement the 6,000 pipes organ. Three professional wedding photographers from independent companies scampered about for a unique angle. Dr. Malvern looked as elegant best, all guest heads swiveled to the rear, as he escorted Helen down the aisle in a Paris-designed silk off-the-shoulder wedding dress with a Belgium lace veil and a train needing three distant cousins dressed in frilly white, ages four, six, and seven, to maneuver. Not once did Helen smile that Darwin could see. Was it nerves? Then he looked to the side aisle where Sweeney sat. She wore a wide-brim hat, but he could see her face. She was crying, wiping her eyes with a linen handkerchief. When her gaze met his, they were not tears of joy. 
In the reception line at the country club, Helen remained cool to him. What's wrong? He whispered to Helen so no one could hear. You know very well what's wrong. I don't. I did not appreciate during the wedding march that you stared at Sweeney Pale. It was so obvious. I looked at many guests. Before the procession, too, it was humiliating. I'm sorry, all right? Fuck you, Helen said as the first guest came down the line. Helen did not smile at the guest until Leonard Stapleton, the son of the mayor of Providence and former lover, approached. She ignored her first impulse to snub him for dumping her a few years back but a surprisingly glad impulse made her smile warmly. Darwin expected Helen would pass Leonard routinely down the line, but the flow stopped. Helen took Leonard's left hand, then she took his right hand and held him longer than she had anyone else. When Darwin finally did take this Leonard guy's hand, there was no eye contact from him and no words of congratulation. It was long after midnight, the twelve-piece orchestra still played tunes over and over for dancing guests, and the bar still served an unbroken, continuously replenished line of revelers when Helen went to dress for their departure. Darwin changed faster and waited away from the crowd, savoring the relief from the constant strained socialization that had been required. Their London honeymoon destination was still secret. They'd be gone for two weeks. Helen wanted to explore the National Gallery, the Portrait Gallery, and the Victorian Albert in the first week before they took excursions to Bath, Constable Country, and the Lake District. Dr. Malvern approached, still in formal attire, but with his bow tie loosely draped around his neck under his shirt collar. Tired? Darwin asked. Exhausted. Things went well, don't you think? Christ, Helen looked pained, as if she had menstrual cramps or something. It was me, Darwin said. She thought I stared at the crowd too much. Dr. Malvern shrugged with no understanding of Helen's ways, even after 24 years. I wanted to talk to you before you left, he said. No one has been told, but I wanted you to know. You can tell Helen when you get to London. Dr. Malvern was looking to the ground. He developed a twitch at the corner of his mouth that Darwin had never noticed before. I'm leaving, Janice, Dr. Malvern said. I've waited until after the wedding. Filing for divorce this week, and then taking a month off in Mexico. Helen will be distraught. Not for long. She suspected, I think, for more than a couple years. It's been touch and go with Janice and me for a long time. Will she accept it? Darwin asked. She'll fight to the end. I'm going to marry Penny Cascade, the receptionist. I've been seeing her since the millennium. That will give the wife all sorts of ammunition to shoot me down in divorce court. Adulterer that I am. But no adultery on her side that might help me. She's got the sexual needs of a rock. Darwin took a deep breath. I'm sorry to hear it. But I hope the best for you. If there's anything, keep Helen from going bonkers. She'll be judgmental, in the extreme. And she'll worry about how her inheritance will be affected. And it will be. And she'll take my getting remarried as soon as I can as a serious blow to her social image status. I'm sure she'll understand. Unlikely, Darwin. Not Helen. Cora will, but not Helen. I just don't want to be at war with Helen for the rest of my life. I'll do what I can, Darwin said as Helen came up in a gray suit with a pale yellow blouse and matching heels. Hold in there, 
Dr. Malvern said as he embraced Darwin. You're the best son-in-law a father could have. He turned to leave as Darwin took Helen's hand to lead her through the crowd of rice throwers to the waiting limo. Chapter 51 Laszlo had breakfast at Benita Thomas' place on the Pinelli Mansion grounds, as had become their habit on Saturday mornings. She was dressed in a print dress, attractive. She was wearing makeup, something she'd started recently. He continued to admire her tenacity to regain control of her usual positive daily feeling before Betsy's disappearance. She was intent to accept the tragedy and not let revenge overwhelm her. She served him her usual burnt coffee, now his favorite. We're never going to know who did it, are we? Bonita said, turning back to the stove to crack eggs into a frying pan and push down the lever on the toaster, dropping in two slices of bread. It is someone who knew her, he said. I think someone she knew very well. And wouldn't we know? It's always someone who knew the victim, and we'd know. She lived a busy life. Swimming, school, working, but it's still possible she lived a secret love life, one we might not know. It's hard to trace her life and her friends. Why is that? She was secretive. Maybe there was something that revealing the affair might hurt one or the other. That's common enough. I just never thought she had time for men. But you wanted to believe that. Come on, Duba. She flipped the eggs over for easy light. Give me a break. I wanted the best for her, and that included the right man. I said it wrong, Laszlo said. You wanted what every mother wants. Good decisions about relationships, tempered, considered. She served the eggs and poured more coffee, sat down at the breakfast table. I'm glad I didn't have more children, Bonita said. I wanted them at first, after Betsy. What made you change, Laszlo asked. I often felt I failed that there was something I didn't know to do to make them the best they could be. And to make it harder, I, I don't think Betsy really loved me as she got older. Oh, I'm sure that's not true, Laszlo said. No, no, I really believe it. I don't mean she hated me or disliked me. She just didn't love. Well, there are all kinds of love, some more demonstrative than others. I think she got her loveless nature from me. I wonder sometimes if I'm capable of love I see in others. Ridiculous, Laszlo said. I don't think so. I just never discovered the caring the way others do. Betsy had no role model. Laszlo thought Bonita was the most loving, caring person he had met in years, taking care of this bizarre family of misfits under Luther's umbrella. Bonita served up eggs. That's why it's hard for me to believe that Betsy was having a clandestine affair. It would have been different for her, Bonita, Hormones raging, everything hypernormal. At her age, a yearning that was more a need for lust than a need for love. They ate in silence for a minute. I do hope you find who did it. I'd like resolution, she said. Not revenge? Well, maybe a little. As time goes by, it's going to be harder to solve the case. But I feel lucky, Bonita. I think it's going to happen soon. Laszlo left Bonita's with his notebooks and photos to cover new and old territory, to begin trying to find someone who recognized Betsy, could place her with someone so the investigation could at least focus. 
The investigation was on the back burner for the police now. The chief had assured him that no M.O. similar to Betsy's murder were found on searching the records, and no new killings that might point to a serial killer had occurred. He was almost sure it was not a random killing, and he determined to find some link, through identification, of more of Betsy's world and friends. Late Sunday, a woman in the coffee shop in the town across from the restaurant recognized Betsy's photo that Laszlo showed her. I saw her twice a few months ago, she said. Where? She was riding a bicycle. Both times? Yes. The second time something was wrong with the tire and she was walking the bike. I stopped and asked her if I could help. I took her to her apartment. Did you know where she was going? I didn't ask. Where did you stop? Near the crossing of Tallpepper Creek and the county road. Where's that? She tried to tell him. He took down as many landmarks as she could remember. She knew nothing else about Betsy. He took down her contact information. Laszlo drove to the spot the woman described. He parked and stood where he believed the woman saw Betsy. It was well away from the water in a heavily wooded area. There was a small convenience store about 50 yards from where he was standing. There were lots on both sides of the roads, mostly undeveloped and heavily wooded. He walked on the properties, looking for something that might suggest a rendezvous. It was a place where access would go unnoticed. He found nothing. At the convenience store, two clerks did not recognize the pictures of Betsy, but they had worked there for fewer than two months. He found the manager in a small room with a metal desk and a folding chair next to a larger storeroom. He was thin, and a cigarette emitted a trail of smoke as he brought it to his lips. Yeah, I seen her. Often? Nah, not really. What did she buy? She didn't come here to buy. I don't think she ever bought anything. So why did she come? She come to pay. She dropped off rent payment every few months in an envelope. Always in cash. I deposited for the owner of this place. Rent for what? A trailer. The owner used to use it, but he rents it out now. I didn't see it from the road. It's back on the property, behind the trees, blocked up, got electricity. How often did she come? I don't know, really. There's a separate dirt drive off Tall Pepper Creek. Who else would use it? Nobody that I know. Did you ever see anyone with her? Only once. I parked on the road, and I saw a guy. Was she with him? I didn't see her. I just saw him on the road walking toward the path that goes to the trailer. Don't know he went there. Did you see his face? It was dark, sir. If I brought you photos, do you think you could recognize him? Ah, uh, probably not. The next day, Laszlo talked to the owner who had arranged the rental. Betsy had paid at least four times what it was worth, and well beyond her resources. No papers were signed. He'd given her a key to the padlock on the back door. He didn't know how often she used it. He thought she lived there sometimes. He'd never known anyone was with her. He had rented it furnished and checked the property only every three or four months. She had never been there when he checked, but she left the key under a rock at the back of the place. The owner refused to let Laszlo look at the place. He'd rented it to an elderly couple when the last rent payment hadn't been paid for two weeks after the due date. Laszlo suspected Luther. It made sense. Luther would undoubtedly know Betsy from the compound 
and he could afford the excesses that Betsy seemed to have available to her. And Betsy had the looks that would attract Luther, definitely, and he'd want to hide his involvement. It would be good for him, but probably exactly what Betsy would demand, too. She'd refuse to accept the label as mistress to a married man. He took a bicycle from the mansion garage to Betsy's apartment and rode to the trailer behind the gas station convenience store. Twenty-five minutes. No problem for an athlete, and probably completed by an athlete in half his time. He rode back a slightly different way. He made it back in twenty minutes. He racked the bicycle. He took his car, cleared the trip odometer. He drove the only reasonable route to the trailer site. Then he drove back to the mansion. Twenty-one and a half miles round trip. He went to the office and took down the logs for fifteen months before Betsy's death. Every time any staff member drove a vehicle, they were required to log mileage at takeout and return, record gas purchases, list and date problems. He made a chart for every vehicle, recording in and out time and odometer mileage. He calculated trip mileage from the out and in data to isolate a trip that might have been close to 21 and a half miles for the drive to the trailer. Three trips qualified. One in the limo by Eugene, two by Darwin, both in the Mercedes. Laszlo called Eugene. He'd never driven any of the cars, or Luther, to the convenience store at the crossroads. He called Darwin and left a message. Then for each car, he highlighted gaps in mileage that were not accounted for by either him, Darwin, or Eugene. That way he might find out times that matched the mileage when someone other than staff had driven cars. Luther would be the only one to drive without logging in. Luther drove his sports cars, except for rare times when he lent one to a friend. And there were few log times on any of the two sports vehicles. The limo had no gaps in times. The Mercedes had only six gaps in three months, all during football season. All the mileage gaps that might indicate Luther had probably driven to the crossroads were two to three times 21 and a half miles. If Luther drove the Mercedes to the trailer, he did not just go and come back. It was unlikely he used the Mercedes. Darwin called back. Laszlo explained his findings. Darwin remembered taking Luther to the crossroads. He remembered it because it was a strange request. Luther got out near the store. He said both times he didn't need anyone to wait or pick him up. He'd get a ride. You never got a call back to pick him up there? Laszlo asked. Never. What's the problem? I'm not sure yet. Is this about Betsy? Yeah, I hope it pans out. The last car to check was the Jeep, and the Jeep might be the vehicle. It would be the most unnoticeable of all the cars in the compound. It was garaged in a shed near the golf course and entered and left the property through a small iron-gated entrance controlled by a key card kept in the glove compartment. Colette's husband used the Jeep often for grounds maintenance and supplies, and he kept meticulous records. And there the numbers were, week after week, always seemingly at night and the mileages in 27 of the 30 segments identified by no log for the miles between logged-in times by Colette's husband were always within a mile or two of 21 and a half. Laszlo checked with everyone who might use the Jeep. The few who had used the Jeep all insisted they had always logged. The only one using the Jeep without logging would be Luther. Laszlo had placed Luther and Betsy in the same general area, now he had only to find witnesses that might have seen them together. He called Darwin. It doesn't prove anything, Laszlo said. 
but it is significant information. I'm going to tell the chief and the lead investigator about your remembering driving Luther out there. I wanted to let you know ahead of time. I'm almost sure someone will contact you. Laszlo then checked Luther's travel schedule. There was exact correlation with no logging gaps with those times when he was out of town. It would be unlikely that someone unknown was using the Jeep. Besides, a stranger would be detected. All other activity was accounted for. Darwin answered a call from Sweeney two days later. She was performing in Oregon. They're calling Luther a person of interest. How could that be? Sweeney asked. Well, there's evidence that Luther drove to a spot where Betsy rented a trailer. It's not proof that he hurt her. I never trusted her. Never, Sweeney said. We don't know anything for sure, Darwin said. We know Luther. We know he succumbs to every temptation, she said. He's admitted the affair, Sweeney, but he denies killing her. Does Granny or Mrs. Thomas know about Luther? I'm sure they're both struggling to deal with the possibilities, Darwin said. Darwin took down the hotel number where she was staying in case her cell didn't work. Darwin, do you need to get away? It's depressing. Luther's in for harder times, he said. I've got a four-stop Canada tour. It would be a great getaway. I can't, Sweeney. I'm on medical rotations. I don't get many breaks anymore. Think about it. It would do you good. I really can't leave Helen either. It's not going well, Sweeney. It's not you, Darwin. Don't blame yourself. Darwin thought for a second. She's seeing another man in public. She says it's work, but it's not. I'm so sorry, Darwin. Call me if you need me. Chapter 52 Luther remained a person of interest, questioned and re-questioned by police, and the press branded him guilty from the start. Aggressive reporters accused him on air, and Luther denied any involvement with such venomous language that no one believed him sane enough to be innocent, and he retreated into seclusion at the mansion, unwilling to defend himself publicly again. When Sweeney was not traveling, she stayed at the mansion through it all. Luther rarely talked to her. He was drinking heavily and stayed locked in his room, eating pizza and cheese puffs and deli bologna wrapped around Vienna sausages from a can. On a weeknight, Sweeney came to Darwin at the hospital. Is he guilty, Darwin? I'm having doubts, Sweeney asked. It's hard. There's no conclusive evidence. What do you really believe? I can't judge him. I just don't know. He doesn't speak to me. It makes me wonder. Have you asked him? I'm afraid of him sometimes. What the answer might be? She looked at him sharply, acknowledging it was true. Even if he was involved, Darwin said, I have to believe it was accidental. I can't imagine him a killer. But he was having an affair with that girl. He must have loved her for so long, so secretive. I don't know that that condemns him. I want to talk to him at the mansion. Would you come with me? He won't see me alone. Darwin hesitated. She took his hesitancy as rejection before she looked away. Of course, he said quickly. Her relieved look made him feel better. I hope we'll know the truth, she said. Darwin knocked on the door to Luther's lock suite. Sweeney stood behind him, wringing her hands. Andre? 
Luther said from somewhere far away from the door. It's me, Darwin, and Sweeney. Ah, shit. We want to talk. The footsteps of bare feet came to the door. The twist bolt lock slid free. Luther opened the door six inches. His only visible eye in the slot was bloodshot. He was unshaven for days at least. I don't want to talk, Luther said. The smell of alcohol permeated his breath and the whiff of unbrushed teeth. It's important, Luther. We're family. You need our support, and we need to talk about it. I don't need support from no one. You do us. The door opened slowly. Luther was shirtless with gray drawstring sweats below. He went back to the bedroom and lay on the bed face down. Darwin pushed an overstuffed white leather chair from near the wall to the side of the bed for Sweeney. He dragged an armless straight-back chair next to her for himself. Darwin and Sweeney sat in silence. Luther's eyes were closed. He was going to sleep. Turn over, Darwin said. Listen. Luther didn't move. With a strong arm to Luther's shoulder, Darwin shook him awake and turned him over, facing up, then found a pillow on the floor by the bed and propped up his head. You're a mess. Darwin said. How can you do this? Sweeney asked. Ah, fuck off. No, Luther, we want answers. Sweeney brought Luther a glass of water from the bathroom. Drink this, she said. She was disgusted with Luther and his attitude. Hey, leave me alone. Did you love that girl, Betsy? Sweeney said. What's it to you? It's everything to me. Only Luther's breathing rattles from secretions from his alcohol-inflamed membranes broke the silence. Speak up, Darwin said. Answer her. She was all right, Luther said. For more than two years, just all right? And you married me, Sweeney said, choking back a sob. Luther closed his eyes, drifting off into an alcoholic fog. Darwin poured the untouched glass of water on Luther's face. Luther rose to half-sitting. You shit, he said, swinging at Darwin with his right arm, fist clenched. But he was weak and uncoordinated from a persistent hangover, and Darwin easily avoided a blow. Sit up, Darwin said, pulling Luther's legs off the bed and raising him up by the shoulders. Luther put his head in his hands and looked down between his knees. Did you kill her? Darwin asked. Luther uttered a short, humorless laugh. Did you? Sweeney added. Can't you at least deny it, Darwin said. I've denied it a thousand times, Luther mumbled. Chapter 53 Early on a Sunday morning, Laszlo took a call from Bonita Thomas. It's about Betsy's coach. A woman at church told me. Her daughter was on the swim team two years before Betsy swam. Her daughter's going to file a complaint against Coach Palmer. The mother wanted as many parents to know before word got out to prepare for investigators. I wanted you to know. Do you know her well enough to call her and get a time to meet with her? Laszlo asked. Later that morning, Laszlo went with Bonita to Margaret Palin's house. They sat in Margaret's living room. Laszlo introduced himself and gave his background. Bonita thanked her for seeing them on such short notice. Margaret said her daughter Sandy was upstairs. Why are you telling parents? Laszlo asked Margaret. We know there will be recriminations, 
threats, investigations, and most of his students will be involved in some way. What's the nature of the charges, Laszlo asked. They're not minor, Margaret said. Sexual harassment, Bonita asked. Margaret nodded. Laszlo, unhappy with leading the witness, glanced at Bonita before he spoke to Margaret again. Did you know Betsy? Of course, Margaret said. Do you know if Betsy was a victim? I don't know. We know only what happened to us. But you must suspect others were involved. You're talking to parents. We just want them to be prepared. We've had no clues at all about what happened to Betsy, Bonita said. Could we speak to your daughter, Laszlo asked. Margaret hesitated. She doesn't like to talk about it. We fully understand, Laszlo said. But if we could get some idea of the scope and who was involved, it might help us know if Palmer might have been involved with Betsy. Margaret thought for a moment. I'll ask her, she said. Sandy Palin sat tensely in a straight-backed chair her mother brought from the kitchen. Frown lines on her forehead looked permanent, and her eyes were frightened, without a touch of inquisitiveness or warmth. She did not smile and looked down to the floor. I'm Betsy's mother, Bonita said. I know, Sandy said. Did you swim with her, Laszlo said. Not often. I graduated a couple of years earlier. What are you doing now, Laszlo asked. She's getting ready to go to college, aren't you, honey, Margaret said. What school, Bonita asked. I haven't decided, Sandy said. We'd like to ask you about Mr. Palmer, Laszlo said, his voice lowered. Are there other swimmers who know? All the girls know. They're afraid. Why are you speaking out? I I'm finished swimming. Out of school. You were afraid of school? It would be easier for them to get rid of a student than deal with Mr. Palmer. So it's widespread. Most of the girl swimmers. I don't think anyone else. So Betsy would have known. She knew. She was his favorite. Why? Sandy shrugged. Was it because Betsy was the best swimmer? Bonita asked. Laszlo shot her a glance of caution. She wasn't that good, Sandy said with rancor. Sandy, her mother warned. Well, she wasn't. Laszlo looked at Bonita to tell her to be quiet. He waited, letting the silence mount. Why was she his favorite? Laszlo finally asked. I don't know, Sandy said sullenly. You can't expect her to tell you things about things she couldn't know, Margaret said with a touch of hostility. Laszlo glanced at Benita to remain silent again. Sandy shifted in her chair. She looked down at the floor. All the adults were motionless. There were better swimmers. A lot better, Sandy finally said. Then why was Betsy his favorite, Laszlo asked. I don't know, Sandy said, still not meeting anyone's gaze. I think you've asked enough, Margaret said sharply. Was Betsy abused in any way? Laszlo asked. I don't know, Sandy said again. Was Mr. Palmer ever violent? Laszlo asked. Don't answer that, Margaret said to Sandy. Why not? Laszlo said. That's for the police tomorrow, Margaret said. Laszlo nodded. He was violent once, Sandy said, glaring at her mother. To you? He hit a boy. Knocked him out. Sandy was looking at Laszlo now. Her eyes held some defiance. 
Did he go to the hospital? He was awake after a few minutes. He had a, a, a bruise. Did anyone else see it? Sandy nodded. She stood up. Her revelation had given her confidence. Sandy, her mother warned. Well, they did. A lot of them saw, Sandy said. Sit down, her mother said. But Sandy left the room without responding. In the car, Bonita spoke to Laszlo as soon as they were on the road. The girl was jealous, she said. Seemed that way, Laszlo said. Betsy was a good swimmer, Bonita said. Laszlo felt her anger. He delayed speaking his thoughts. Do you think that girl's testimony will be true, Bonita said. I think she could easily have some petty reason for disliking Palmer, enough to destroy his career. I wouldn't trust her, Laszlo said. Her mother could have put her up to it. Did you get that feeling? Yes. Do you think Palmer had anything to do with the murder? I'm not making any judgments yet, but I want to talk to him as soon as I can. Chapter 54 Laszlo stopped Mike Palmer as he was leaving the gym for the parking lot. Mr. Forgash, Palmer said. Palmer remembered his name. Was there a special reason? It wasn't a common name. Had he been worried the last time they spoke? Enough to make him never forget? Laszlo asked if they could talk. What about? Palmer asked. Serious accusations. Palmer stared straight at Laszlo, his eyes intense, concentrating on not looking away. Someone you trained is about to accuse you of improprieties, Laszlo said. She may have already made her complaint. Palmer laughed without humor. Sandy Palin, a sick girl, not a very good competitive swimmer, and capable of lying. And what about the improprieties with female athletes you trained, Laszlo asked. Anger blazed in Palmer's glare. Those would be lies, Palmer said. With Betsy Thomas? I won't justify that with a response. No response could mean yes to me, and others. The edge of Palmer's mouth twitched nervously and his hand went reflexively to shield his eyes. That's bullshit, man. Absolute bullshit, Palmer said. Did you ever hit anyone? You're treading on a no-trespass zone. You did, then. Fuck you. Why deny it? Wasn't there a boy you hit unconscious? Think what you want, but don't slander me. I just want you to confirm or deny. A false accusation? An event. Palmer spat on the ground and left for his car. Laszlo found Luther in the rec room watching reruns of playoffs at least five years old. They were games he'd played in. Luther's famous number 12 on the quarterback's jersey with the team colors. Need to talk to you, boss, Laszlo said. I'm not in the mood. This shouldn't be disregarded, Mr. Pinelli. I think there's a way to prove your innocence. Luther cut off the TV but still looked irritated. Laszlo sat across from him. There's a chance I can get the person of interest stuff off your back forever. I need you to talk about Betsy Thomas. I'm not talking. It's an opportunity that could fade. Luther thought for a moment, then shrugged. You loved her, didn't you? Luther didn't move. Why hide it? 
Why all those secret rendezvous for so long? She didn't want to be a mistress. She didn't want to be called a whore behind her back. Then why not divorce and marry her? Celebs do it all the time. She didn't want that. She had her career. She wanted to be the best. And she thought marriage would screw that to the wall. She'd studied the careers of other great women athletes. And you know, not many at her age were married. And those that did get married, trying to not change their careers. Never for the better. Did she ever mention her coach, Mike Palmer? Yeah, he worried her. But she knew he was the best coach she could get at the moment. Worried her about what? He was putting the moves on her, man. Setting up trips to competition so they would be together. He'd touch her in public, too, so that it made her really uncomfortable. Coach putting hands on a student for congratulations for a win, but the hands a little too much pressure and a little too close to the wrong spots on her body. It was creepy, man. Did you tell the police? Yeah. They talked to Palmer, but nothing happened. Why didn't you stop it? I wanted to crush the guy's skull, but Betsy needed his expertise. She wouldn't let me do it. Did she have sex with him? Oh, fuck you, man. You mean you think so and won't say? I mean she never had sex with him. How can you be so sure if she needed his expertise so bad? Trust me, she never had sex with him. Lazo leaned forward. I'm going to try to get this resolved. You may need to talk to the cops again. I talk to them all the time, man. Always on their terms. About Betsy? Never about Betsy. That might have to change. Luther turned the TV back on, started the tape. You training this fall? Laszlo asked. He knew Luther had been suspended for drug use months ago. You bet your sweet ass I'm training, Luther said. The next day, Laszlo called Mike Palmer and asked to meet. Palmer reluctantly agreed to meet at his condo. He was in a black workout suit and bare feet. He was cool to Laszlo, but showed him a seat on the living room couch. Palmer sat in an overstuffed chair. It started, hasn't it, Laszlo said. Palmer didn't respond, but he looked defeated, his eyes shifting, his mouth in a tight line. I'm here to give you advice, Laszlo said. I don't need your advice. You do, actually. You may survive the harassment charges. The girl is not very credible. But you'll go down on the murder charge. I didn't kill her. Palmer choked back his emotions. His body straightened, as if ready to receive a blow. Really? You didn't kill her? When you harassed her? She told others, you know. And you've got a documented history of violence, at least once. And I know there are others. It won't take much to find out. Circumstantial. There might be physical evidence once you become a serious person of interest. I've served on hundreds of investigations for murder, my friend. This is shaping up as one zipped-up case. It's crap. You don't believe that. Palmer got up and paced the room, back and forth from the chair to the front door. Laszlo waited. Palmer took his seat. And my advice to you is this, Laszlo said. It's straightforward from years of experience. You've got to confess. You're crazy. Not at all. Tell what happened. If you didn't kill her, tell exactly what happened. 
I know you were involved in some way, and everyone else will. You'll be alone with your lies against the world. Sooner or later, you'll trip up on your denials, fall flat down on your face, and you'll die, or be locked up for life. And if you just wait it out, the evidence will continue to mount, and circumstantial or not, it'll bury you. Palmer thought with his head down. I didn't kill her, he said, never looking at Laszlo. What happened? Laszlo asked. I was angry. Why? I loved her. And you were angry? She didn't even like me. She liked to ridicule me, dirty old man sort of stuff. What did you do? Palmer didn't respond. Did you hit her? I didn't kill her. How did she die? She fell. Her head hit the cement at the edge of the pool, face first. She fell into the pool? I tried to pull her out. And you think she drowned? Yeah. She didn't drown. I saw the autopsy report. She might have been strangled. Strangling didn't kill her, Palmer said. If you didn't kill her, why didn't you call for help? She was dead. I knew I'd be blamed. The only possible way was to make her disappear. Palmer had turned matter-of-fact. Your only chance is to tell your story. Do you believe me? What I believe is not important. What you've got to do is tell the truth. It's the only way you'll garner any sympathy at all. Maybe enough for leniency, but it's got to be the truth. Palmer couldn't control his tremblings. After a few minutes of silence, he nodded. Well, what do I do now? He said. While Palmer dressed in street clothes, Laszlo called Chief Crandall. He didn't want any inexperienced incompetent messing up the confession. He drove Palmer to the station. He did not offer, nor was he asked, to be present at the confession. He would not know for months or maybe years exactly how the confession went. But he knew Luther was off the hook. Laszlo drove to the mansion directly. Luther was in the kitchen snacking on beef jerky. Laszlo told him Mike Palmer had confessed. I told him I didn't do it, was all Luther said. And the topic never came up between Laszlo and Luther. For the few weeks, Laszlo continued working security for Luther, or after that, when Laszlo never saw Luther in person and never talked to him again. Part 5 Chapter 55 Darwin carried Sweeney's tray from the hospital cafeteria checkout, and they sat down for one of their now periodic breakfast chats. It was the only time that Darwin could be available, and they often met at 5 or 6 a.m. before his day got busy. I knew he was innocent, Sweeney started. I've always done it. Deep down, I think I believed it too, Darwin said. He can't seem to get things right sometimes, but he's not a killer. He thinks he's going to be indicted next month on a weapons charge. He's worried about it. Darwin sugared his oatmeal. We've got to do something for him, Sweeney said. He's broke. What's he want to do? Darwin asked. Reestablish his career? Would a team take him on? He has a few friends left. I want him to sell the house to pay his debts, and I'll buy him a condo. Support him until he can find the team to rebuild his career. Is he through gambling? Darwin asked. He's promised. 
What will you do if he's still got the urge? If he gambles, I won't support him. I've told him, she said. Are you going to live with him? Not with my career. I have to be here, and he'll be living where he can get established. I don't think it will be New York. She hadn't touched her food. I don't love him anymore, she said. I can't forgive him for that affair with Betsy. For lots of reasons. But I am still married to him. You don't owe him anything, Darwin said. He sipped the last bit of coffee, preparing to leave. Will you support him? Sweeney asked. He needs to know we both care, even though he'd never admit it. It would make a big difference to him. Darwin sighed. I will. But only if he's drug and alcohol-free, doesn't gamble, and as long as he never hurts you again. She looked away to hide her feelings. I'm beyond that now, she said softly. Darwin had to leave to join in rounds. Chapter 56 Granny died at the mansion peacefully in her sleep from a probable arrhythmia. Her heart was strong, as well as her will, until the end. She had only four beneficiaries. She left Bonita Thomas two houses she still owned and rented in $500,000 and almost all the art and jewelry in the mansion that was valued at over $12 million. She left $2 million to her only remaining daughter. Granny left the remainder of her fortune to Darwin, $32 million plus. She left it unencumbered with the wish that, at Darwin's discretion, it be used for the advancement of medical science and treatments. She left Luther nothing. Chapter 57 It was Saturday morning, two years after the wedding. Over the phone, Darwin felt the urgency in Dr. Malvern's voice. He had a kidney stone. It's killing me, Dr. Malvern said. I'm drugged up, and I can't take Coral to the club's annual ball. She's in the Queen's Court this year. She needs an escort. Why me, thought Darwin. He suspected most of the guys that Coral hung out with these days didn't have a Malvern-acceptable tuxedo for the club's standards. When, he asked. Tonight. Could you pick her up at 6.30? There's a dinner and a reception from 7 to 9. Then her presentation in the Queen's Court, at the ball that lasts until midnight. Darwin needed to find coverage. I'll call you back within the hour, he said. Cora was alone at the Malvern house when Darwin arrived. The new Mrs. Malvern was with Dr. Malvern at the hospital in the city. If the stone didn't pass, doctors would try a lithotripsy or surgery. Helen hadn't visited her parents' home, even occasionally for more than a year, claiming to be too busy with her new career at the museum to take the time. Coral made Darwin wait as she made final preparations. Come on up, she said. I'm almost ready. On the second floor, he passed the room where he'd stayed so many nights in the early years in college when he sought Dr. Malvern's advice on career and when he had enjoyed spending time with the family. Cora was in her bedroom. He stopped outside, uncomfortable with entering a young woman's bedroom in an empty house. Come on in, Coral said. I'm decent. She was in a slip and bra, sitting at a dresser, putting the finishing touches on her face makeup, her blonde hair shining with a fresh professional treatment, waved and flowing. 
I'll wait downstairs, Darwin said. Silly, she said. You're like my brother. He started to leave the room. Although he'd seen her in the skimpiest of bikini bathing suits, somehow she had a persistent sensual aura here in her bedroom alone and half-nude. Her scent, under the perfumes and powders, was subliminally feral. She ran to him, taking his arm, then kissing him on the cheeks so the edge of her lips felt warm and moist on the edge of his mouth. She held her kiss longer than the peck he expected. I'm so glad Daddy sent you, she hugged him. Is he better? Touch and go, I think. You probably talked to him since I did. She moved toward the walk-in closet. I need help, she said over her shoulder. She returned holding her dress so high it wouldn't touch the floor. Pale blue, full length, off the shoulder. With exaggerated care, she stepped into the dress, pulled it by the edge over her breast, which ballooned with the pressure, and she adjusted her bra and settled both breasts by a sideway back-and-forth motion. Zip me, she said without looking at him. Her hair smelled of flowers and mordants. Always overdone, a little too much of everything, and he smelled the sweet, slightly pungent overlay of alcohol, undiluted, not scotch, probably whiskey or bourbon. Fix the fastener on top, she said. He fiddled with the metal hook, finally slipping it through a flimsy thread loop. She didn't look at him. Let's bag this, she said. Get casual. Eat fish and chips someplace. Go listen to some music. When she turned to look at him, her face was anxious without a smile. She was not teasing. You're to be presented at the club, he said. There are five in the Queen's Court. Not one fucking soul in the room will care if there are four. Someone would be disappointed. Screw them. She turned her back to him again. Unzip me. She was already freeing herself at the top, ripping the fastener, twisting so her breast would fall unhindered from her support bra. I won't do that, Darwin said. I told your father I'd take you to the club to be presented. If you don't want to do that, then stay here, but you're on your own. You're a repressed, sucked-up queer, she laughed. He felt no need to defend his libido or his sexuality. You make the decision, he said. She was giggling, and her hand stroked where she thought his genitals lay under the black wool of his tuxedo. You're hard, I can feel it. He might be aroused in the crotch, but overall he was appalled and saddened, and definitely not interested in his adulterous sister-in-law, in the deviant daughter of his mentor, or in debased coral, whichever one was present at the moment. Still on the bed, on her back, Coral lifted her dress, crunching the fabric, and pushed down her panties, but the bulk of her dress hid what she wanted to show. He clutched her shoulders and pulled her to standing. Get dressed. I'll be waiting downstairs. We'll go to the club. We'll forget this and never speak of it between us or to anyone. La-di-da. Grow up, Coral. Faggot. I'll be waiting. It was fifteen minutes before she descended the stairs with gingerly steps. I'm ready, she said, trying to sharpen her diction. You look very nice, he said. You're talking shit, but I like it, she said as dignified as she could manage. Thank God her focus was on trying to function normally now, not on fornicating. Darwin escorted Coral. They entered the ballroom, Coral taking his arm. She leaned against him for support. Coral greeted friends and members, all of whom she knew but could remember at this intoxicated moment the names of only a few. 
As they went to a table, Coral took two glasses of wine from a waiter's tray and without pause chugged down the contents. Darwin took her to an empty table for four, settled her into a chair, refused to bring her a drink when she pleaded, and carefully brought food to her, which she looked at but made no effort to eat. "'I'm sick,' she said. She heaved onto the table before she could get a napkin to her mouth. Darwin signaled a woman's server, and with her help got Coral to a restroom. After a few minutes, the woman came out. "'She'll be all right,' she said, as she walked back to her position." Ten minutes later, Coral emerged. She'd combed her hair and put on fresh makeup. Her dress was wet with spots where the residual vomit had only partially been wiped clean. Her eyes were glazed and her breath had a garbage pit smell. Darwin went to help her. She pushed him away. I want to go home, she said. Get the car. She shuffled to the nearest bar a few feet away. She leaned over and took a bottle of already opened Johnny Walker Black Label. Malvern she said to the bartender for a charge to the family account. The valet pulled up Darwin's car. Coral stumbled once as she approached Darwin. Darwin took the bottle from her. Don't, she said. He handed the bottle to the valet to return it to the inside. He got Coral in the passenger seat. She put her head back against the headrest and closed her eyes as he closed the door. She was silent as Darwin drove down the club drive to turn on the road. Coral kept her eyes closed. Sister Helen, she's a shitty fuck, isn't she? Darwin refused to respond. That's why Andrew dumped her. She's never had a climax. She told me. I don't know about Leonard. Darwin decided to let her ramble. He concentrated more than necessary on his driving. Coral laughed briefly. You schmuck. She does girls, you know. Darwin slowed for a traffic light. A truck behind him blew a horn with unjust frustration. Fuck you, Coral said to the truck, flashing a bird through the back window. Darwin accelerated after the light changed. Helen was in love with that public school girl, the swimmer, Coral said. Don't do that, Darwin said. Yeah, Helen's consulted a divorce lawyer. Did you know that? I know him well. Darwin didn't know for sure. But it didn't surprise him, and he cared less than he would have hoped. Oh, oh, God, I feel sick again, Coral said. Darwin pulled to the side of the road. Coral opened the door and heaved before he could stop. She moaned, wiped her mouth with her dress hem, heaved again. Darwin waited for more than a minute. Feel good enough to go on, he said. Coral didn't say anything but closed the door and leaned back again. Even after Darwin helped her out of the car into the house, Coral was silent. I need a drink, she finally said, but he took her up the stairs to her bedroom, helped her out of her dress, got her in the bed and covered her, brought her a glass of water from the bathroom and turned out the light. Darwin checked her throughout the night, making her drink fluids, until dawn, when he awakened her long enough to know she was sobering and that she was in no danger. She said nothing to him. Call me if you need me, he said. But he stopped next door to a neighbor he knew slightly, explained Coral's predicament, gave the neighbor a key to the house, and asked her to check on Coral in an hour or so to be sure she was up and about. He left his number and went straight to the hospital where he was late for rounds. Chapter 58 
On a Friday evening a few weeks later, when Darwin was at the hospital, Helen dressed in her now private bedroom in their condo, in a form-fitted white pantsuit with zuni earrings and turquoise shell coral mother-of-pearl and jet, and a bracelet with five silver bangles anchored by a solid gold tube by the artist Cameron Estes on her left wrist. She felt elegant in an austere way, and unavoidably attractive with her now dyed black hair cut short and in a shaved taper at the nape of the neck. The show opened in a converted warehouse, redesigned with new temporary walls and multi-layered hanging supports for pictures and soaring pedestals for sculptures. Helen circulated among the excessively wealthy, the infinitely connected, the unsuppressed famous, and the pinch-penny gogglers of celebrities as the representative from the museum, where she was now almost totally responsible for publicity. Helen introduced herself to a junior female senator from New Jersey who was dressed in an amazingly frumpy pink satin dress with an oversized collar, a thick belt of deep red plastic, and serviceable heels, which, if replaced by sneakers, might have given the senator some ironic stylistic attention, but didn't work as it was. Divine, the senator said, absolutely divine, what the art world is putting out these days. Are you looking for something specific, painting, sculpture? The senator laughed and leaned forward slightly conspiratorially. Why lie? I'm trying to connect with potential donors of unlimited wealth. Helen smiled dutifully. No scarcity here, she said. Helen surveyed the room, looking for friends and artists she hadn't met. She saw Leonard Stapleton. There was no doubt. The newly elected congressman from New York and the very same son of the former mayor of Providence that had dumped her a few years ago but came to the wedding, she thought in retrospect, to mock her. She looked away humiliated. Is the museum buying anything these days? The senator asked Helen. Helen looked back at Leonard, standing now in profile with a group of six. There was an attractive redhead in a short red skirt and black thigh-high boots, a little tacky, actually, but she did not seem to be his companion. Helen looked at the senator again. There are a couple of established artists that the museum is interested in. For eight figures? Sometimes nine. I fail to see the value when any work of art goes for those prices. There are people in this country in life-threatening poverty. Leonard hadn't looked her way. What would she say to him? She was conscious of her heartbeat. The market has been inflated by the prowling super-wealthy spurred by the past astonishing sales prices of the masters over the last decade, Helen said. They see investment opportunities at prices that mean almost nothing to them. And with no taste? the senator asked. Usually none at all. Their selections running to the shocking and the bizarre. When she glanced back at Leonard, he was looking at her with a slightly sardonic smile, standing alone now. Helen smiled back. I must say, I am concerned with the shift of excessive wealth to the inaccessible few, the senator said. I agree, Helen said matter-of-factly. She raised her hand to signal Leonard. There's an old friend, she said to the senator. You must excuse me. The senator said nothing, rebuked by Helen's abruptness. Helen walked with restrained dignity toward Leonard. 
She took his hand, keeping a distance a little farther than might be expected, although with his touch he felt a muted thrill she had never felt when she had dated him before. "'Congratulations on your election win,' Helen said. "'By a landslide, wasn't it?' "'You are positively stunning,' Leonard said. She buried any doubt about his sincerity and smiled with a brief coquettish downgaze. "'I've missed seeing you,' he said. Now he was lying. She couldn't bury that. If he were serious, then why had he left her without the slightest courtesy of an expressed regret at failure to contact? I'm buried now, she said. To a doctor, he said. He had at least been aware of her. Almost a doctor, she said. And loaded, I hear. He smiled with a hint of sarcasm that made her even more wary of his intent. It's great to see you, Helen said. I'm here to circulate. I know you understand. Uh, could we go for a drink later on? The two of us? Uh, catch up? I don't think so, Helen said. He took her hand in both of his. As a favor, I want to talk to you. I can't leave. After the show. I'll wait. There's a sunrise deli perfect for late night up the street. She wanted to be with him. Darwin would not be home. It would be fun to see what Leonard had in mind. She couldn't deny she was attracted to his looks and his new status. She nodded. I'll meet you here at closing, he said. The corner deli had expansive windows on both street sides where patrons could eye the street crowd and the street crowd could ogle the patrons, often famous. Helen felt a moment of confusion about her wish not to be seen with Leonard. She often was in public with single men and women without a moment's apprehension of impropriety. It was her and Leonard's past together, her unrequited attraction, and her growing interest in him that made her want to hide, which was ridiculous, really. They got a booth at the deli at Helen's request. Helen told Leonard of her work not mentioning Darwin, how she was proud of the reputation she had molded. She wondered if Leonard knew her marriage was a disaster. I had an idea I wanted to run by you, he said. It came to me when I saw you at the show. She looked at him quizzically. Honestly, she had hoped for a continuance of the relationship. Some suggesting he wanted to meet again, soon. I know some museums lend paintings and sculpture, works that are not presently on display, he continued. Not often, and only special circumstances, she said. I'm a congressman. That has to be a special opportunity. For your home? Not home. For the office. A sculpture would look just great at the lobby. A painting on the office wall, maybe. His arrogance was unlimited. Would you pay, she asked. Not buy. Rent? He laughed. It would be a loan to benefit the public and increase awareness of the museum. I don't think the director would approve. It would have to be a board decision. There will be all sorts of discussions on insurance security precedent. If you, why not every politician? I'm sure the mayor would love the idea and argue he had priority since he ran the city. He frowned. Would you see if they would consider it? I have to admit, it would make you stand out from the refuse pile of politicians that are getting elected today, she said. Touche, he said. She blushed at her air. I didn't necessarily include you in that group. Will you? he asked. I'll think about it, she said. He gave her his card, which she slipped into her silver-studded purse. 
The conversation turned to mundane opinions about uncaring constituency, and 30 minutes later, Leonard shared a taxi with her to take her home without a single word about seeing her again or even a compliment on how much he enjoyed their time together. Helen felt foolish, as Leonard had always made her feel. She did ask the director, who thought the idea was unworthy of consideration for a congressman. But the director saw potential as a profit-making scheme for the museum, and she'd considered targeting someone more important than a junior congressman of Leonard's low stature. Helen felt no obligation to call Leonard and tore up his card she'd been using as a bookmark at her bedside. Ten days later, Leonard called. Helen was thrilled, and she determined to start seeing him regularly. She would please Leonard this time, beyond his wildest dreams, surprise him. She had been skimpy with her sexual favors the first time around. Well, in honesty, she was almost chased. She went to a bookstore not close to where she lived or worked and found three books on making a man happy and providing maximum stimulation. She learned positions most satisfying, and she studied the art of fellatio on the Internet. She listed varied plans for foreplay, with alternate approaches if he didn't respond to one of her priority plan points. She had hoped to be excited by her new knowledge, but she still had a touch of dread and a cloud of half-expected failure haunted her as she memorized the application of her newly discovered skills. Chapter 59 Months later, Helen's divorced lawyer told her to think hard about any possible rumors about Darwin, who might be investigating her and her involvement with Leonard Stapleton. A few hours later, she thought of Coral. She made sure when she went out to check on her father that Coral would be at home. She'd know something about Darwin. My God, she invented rumors. Why ask me, Coral said. Helen chose her words carefully. He'll cut me off from everything. He told you that? He will. You know it. When he finds out. Mother told me you're pregnant. Helen swallowed. Have you told anyone else? You don't want it to get out, do you? Helen thought for a second. It doesn't make any difference, I guess, she said as casually as possible. But she really must have a settlement before it was common knowledge. Are you going to abort? Helen seethed the corals prying, not appropriate even for a sister. Do you know any hint of Darwin's doing anything wrong that might help the lawyer, she said. Jesus, he spent the night with me. You're lying. Christ, Helen, why would I lie? When? The night of the ball at the club. I'd had too much to drink. He kept bringing them to me, like he wanted to get me drunk. I told him to take me home. I wasn't feeling so good with so many drinks. When I went upstairs, he came up and took my dress off. I was woozy and fell onto the bed. He spent the night. Did he? I told him not to, that I was intoxicated. But he would not be denied. Helen doubted everything Coral said. Would you tell the investigators, she asked, be willing to testify? Coral smiled. Of course. And Mrs. Paramore from next door came over in the morning after he left. She'll know he was there. Helen leaned forward and kissed her sister on the cheek. I'll check on Dad, she said. I think he's okay. Helen needed to get back to the city for a showing. Tell him I'll see him on Thursday then, she said.
Chapter 60 Darwin was scheduled for Belize to fulfill his mandatory three-month foreign service rotation. A team of four medical students provided care under the supervision of a faculty member and local physicians in Belize City, traveling frequently to outlying clinics. I'll be going to Belize for my rotation in October, Darwin said to Helen the evening he picked her up for a weekend to visit her mother. Helen now lived in her own apartment on the Upper East Side. She'd been advanced at her job to the Museum of Director of Marketing. He suspected she would be filing for divorce, but she denied it, still happy to keep up appearances. She said nothing. Did you have a good day? he asked. She'd been stressed about work lately. She walked with him to his car in a neighboring garage. Something go wrong? he asked. Is it Belize? I could care less, she said. He kissed her on the cheek. What's wrong? He kissed her again, but she jerked away. You'll be gone for my party. At the plaza. A weekend in the city. My husband doesn't show for my birthday. It won't look right. Her 28. I'm sorry, Helen. I can't back out. Couldn't we celebrate early? You can't just reschedule at the plaza. There have been over 150 positive RSVPs. But she was really trying to prove he didn't care, even if the circumstances didn't suggest it. Well, I've got plenty of time down there, he said. I could see if they'd let me off for three days. I could fly back for the party. She turned to look at him. You didn't even remember. He was sure from her eyes that she could accept his death as a just punishment. Even wished for it in her heart, if not her mind. It was a look he saw these days more frequently. Not for long, but definitely there. She was beginning to despise him. It was with him constantly now, this question about what he was doing wrong. And why was she so angry? Wasn't her heart with Leonard Stapleton now anyway? She got into the car, slamming the door. Darwin discussed Helen's discontent with Dr. Malvern, that Coral had told him about Helen's divorce lawyer long ago, and about her recycled lover, Leonard Stapleton. The sympathetic doctor held him blameless. Helen wants to be content with herself in life, he said, but she's never been. She expects someone to make her happy, to mold her self-respect. She truly believes in her subconscious that someone could and should do it. It's not in her where the responsibility lies, and it should lie there, in herself. You'll never fulfill that. That's part of her flaw thinking her cure will come from the outside, when really it's only Helen who can make Helen happy. My parents were happy in their marriage, Darwin said. I wish Helen and I had that. Marriage is not easy for many, Dr. Malvern said. Some don't know how to love. And without sustained love, marriages are not successful. How did you sustain it for so long? Things are never what they seem, Darwin. He paused for a long moment. And don't you succumb to guilt. You're not to blame where Helen is concerned. And trust your instincts when you doubt the wisdom of getting married. Creating a new life is possible with unseeable satisfaction. And it's not wrong. It's never a sin to try again. Darwin thought he knew Dr. Malvern's meaning. He had come to a conclusion. The last year of marriage to Helen was fraught with barely hidden resentments and smoldering dislikes. He knew now he could never change her, or his new understanding of her. He'd have to take action. And he decided 
his Belize rotation was more important than Helen's birthday party. Three months later in Belize, Darwin was paired with Rob Griffin and Dominique Millerand. In the third week, the three were assigned to a doctor's clinic near the Guatemalan border for a week. They stayed in British Army barracks, now abandoned, and provided health care in two small open-air offices of local doctors who were supported in turn by both the medical school but also the Belize City Hospital. They worked 12 to 14 hours a day, giving injections, screening patients, managing referrals to Belize City, completing vaccination schedules, and providing emergency care from colds to broken bones. There was no time for recreation or touring. On the twelfth day after his arrival, Darwin stopped his work to lie down on the wooden floor of the clinic, his face flushed, his mouth dry, his forehead hot. He had difficulty remembering or processing even simple commands. Dominique and Rob transported Darwin back to the barracks on a stretcher to be examined by the faculty advisor. Darwin had no nausea or vomiting, but ached all over and had pain localized to a single inflamed puncture wound on the right leg. The doctor thought, from an insect bite, a toxic reaction. He suggested IV hydration, which Dominique set up. The doctor also gave antibiotics, pain medication, and sedation. Darwin drifted into a world of dulled cognizance and altered images. He could see Dominique in lucid periods for a while. Then he slipped in and out of semi-consciousness for two days. Pain in his leg radiated through his body with an insistent consistency. Blurred images of Helen floated far away on a vast horizon. His mother placed a cool cloth on his brow. Pearlstein hid behind a door. Dominique was there, on and off, a relief in his times of anxious stupor. She was not distinct, but came to him in exacting fragments, her face, her hand that held his with healing support. He rapidly recovered once fully conscious. Dominic had been by his side throughout the entire ordeal, her dark eyes brimmed with concern, sleeping at night curled up in a chair. Although his illness left him with little memory of the days it took to recover, the curative presence of Dominic would be with him, an almost ever-present memory. Chapter 61 In midsummer, at the Patmore Renaissance Hotel in Midtown, the medical school gave a presentation to philanthropists to raise private funds for research. The National Institute of Health was reeling under budget cuts from Congress, and grant funding had dropped to levels far below 15 years ago. Jason Ono and Darwin were back-to-back -back on the schedule, presenting methodology and potential impact of lab work. Dominic was there as a headliner to present an analysis of new strategies for determining funding sources. More than 200 were in the audience. A rough calculation had been whispered among the speakers that the potential, if fully realized, could be more than 100 million. The talks went well. The reception was in the rooftop restaurant with panoramic views of the city. Hot, Darwin said to an artist who had sold one of the many pieces at auction to a Russian entrepreneur for $30 million. He was never comfortable breaking the ice with these people. I absolutely hate New York in the summer, the artist said. I have a studio in Maine, and I come in only when I have to. Well, thanks for coming in this evening, Darwin said. I didn't come in for this, she smiled mechanically. Well, congratulations on your career. You must be pleased. A real success. 
There are IRS complications with the sale. It's all shit. You know it. I know it. It's all in the money. The IRS is attracted to it like dog shit to a shoe bottom. I'm riding some elusive bubble that's going to pop someday. Could be tomorrow. But you won't lose everything, and you've had the advantage of being in the right place at the right time. Don't imply, because I make a lot of money, I don't deserve it. No offense intended, Darwin said. You have an amazing career, she laughed. What career, dude? It's business. I do art one day a week, now if I'm lucky. Christ, I've got workers casting the sculptures, carpenters doing the mobiles, painters testing shades and durability to slap on anything that's immobile. It's like a factory that doesn't know what it's making. But you like what you've done. You must. You've been instrumental in the contemporary progression of art. Dominique joined them. Darwin introduced the artist. I like your work, Dominique said, and Darwin wondered if she were sincere. There was little else she could say under the circumstances. Many pervasive opinions considered this woman's art offensive and dehumanizing, bodies dismembered in a scale that, at least twice, stood two stories high. Excrement, fornication, genitalia, child figures torn and mutilated, mostly in the abstract, but never without the strong suggestion of realism. The lights dimmed, recovered, dimmed, and then faded to dark. What the fuck? the artist said. Darwin could just make out the features of the artist and Dominique from the night sky ambient light through the panoramic windows. The city's dark, Dominique said. Overloaded grid, the artist said. Like they can't anticipate when it's 96 degrees by 8 o'clock in the morning. Many patrons grumbled, and the crowd seemed united in frustration and irritations that were moving toward anger. Within minutes, a hotel manager tapped a glass with a spoon to get everyone's attention. We've lost power. The backup generators have not started. Terrorism, someone said. I don't know. I can't get through to the authorities, the manager offered. It probably won't last. And if it does, someone asked. The bar will be open. Staff will continue to serve. Someone from the hall darkness called out. The elevators aren't working. The room was already heating up. Stay put, the manager said. We'll make you as comfortable as possible. Fuck that, the artist said. I want out. And she headed toward an exit. Few others moved, anticipating restoration in minutes. Darwin and Dominique went to the windows. Sixty-two stories below. Car lights and strobes from emergency vehicles lined the streets below, trapped in total gridlock. There's no way that self-infatuated woman will ever get a taxi, Dominique said. Even with the lights on, it will take hours to clear the congestion. She'll use a broom, Darwin said. I think Jason's still on the second floor in the auditorium. Dominique tried to call him, but there was no answer. Darwin tried with the same result. Should we go down, he asked. Maybe if we wait a few minutes, the lights will come back on. But after half an hour, the city was still dark. Even on the top floor, people milled around, restless to leave. Let's find Jason, Dominique said. Darwin heard concern in her voice. He wondered what Dominique's and Jason's relationship was now. They found the stairwell. The exit lights were on battery. Once the door closed, the stairwell was dark. 
People were feeling their way up and down stairs. Someone had fallen a few feet from them. A woman called out to her husband for help. Darwin took Dominique's hand and groped for the railing, then moving to the sound of the woman's voice. People passed, using the glow from cell phone screens to find stairs and door openings. The woman sounded injured. They stopped. She was crumpled against the corner of a landing. You all right? Darwin asked. Arresting, she said. The descent was slow going. In eight minutes they had gone from floor 52 to 43. As they got to the lower floors, more and more people were trying to get to the street. There was still no known reason for the loss of power. At level 21, a young man with a radio said the news reported Manhattan and part of Bronx were affected, but Brooklyn still had power in most areas. Darwin held Dominique's hand as they descended side by side. Her grip was firm and tightened when she couldn't see the next step or when she stumbled. She brushed against him often, as if to be sure he was there. They became more enmeshed in the crowd. They reached the auditorium. The only lighting were flashlights. Swatches of light flickered around the room. The air was hot and humid. Fifty or more people sat on chairs or stretched out on the floor, flexing paper fans on sticks that staff had handed out. The rumor now was that terrorism was not involved. Grid overload, everyone agreed. This was tentatively confirmed by a man with a portable radio tuned to a New Jersey station. They could not find Jason. His cell phone rang, but without answer. I don't want to stay here, Dominique said. I can walk. It's a zoo out there, Darwin said. I do it three or four times a week. Not without power. It doesn't look like there's a quick solution, she said. I'll go with you. No, no, you, you really don't need to, really. He gave her a stern look to stop resisting. I'll grab us a couple bottles of water. The streets around the hotel were permeated with people moving slowly. No one could walk a straight line, and they bumped around like red blood cells in a giant artery. Motionless traffic clumped under extinguished streetlights, and the police were trying to sort out vehicles and intersections. But there was no place to go. Broadway seemed safest, and for a few blocks they were among throngs of humanity. I hope Jason is all right, she said, with a lull in the din of the street noise. He's a competent guy, Darwin said. You guys still dating? We've never dated. We're friends, and he was married. And you don't approve of marriage? Of dating married men? They scuttled through vehicles blocking the street. On moral grounds, Darwin asked. I guess but it never seemed like a good idea for anyone involved. I agreed, Darwin said, but with a touch of disappointment. The noise got louder, and when they were again in a quieter section, now walking with little interruption, they were silent for many blocks. They saw few people in the rear vehicle. He could feel Dominique tense as the streets became quieter and more ominous. It was obvious police were handcuffed with inability to move in clogged traffic and were swamped with emergency calls. With loss of power, the risk of crime escalated. Dominique moved closer to Darwin. They were less than five blocks from Dominique's place. Darwin grabbed Dominique's arm. Two youths, a black and an Hispanic, came out of an alley a hundred feet ahead. Let's cross to the other side, Darwin said. Hurry. The two youths were coming after them. He looked for a vehicle they could flag, but there was nothing. He turned, holding Dominique close to him, and faced the youths. "'Hey, let me see your hands,' the Hispanic youth said. He was small, but looked quick. 
He held the knife. The black youth was larger, with defined muscles. What do you want? Darwin asked. With cat-like speed and motion, the Hispanic circled behind Dominique and held the knife to her throat. Darwin still held her hand, but feared any sudden action might startle the youth to seriously injure Dominique. Let her go, the youth said to Darwin. Just tell me what you want, Darwin said. But he let go of Dominique's hand, and with his eyes let her know he was not abandoning her. Put up your hands. I'll blow your motherfucking head off, the black said, waving a pistol. The Hispanic youth's look was wild. He would not be one to reason. I've got maybe twenty bucks, Darwin said. Two credit cards. Not enough to risk going to prison for robbery. Shut the fuck up, the Hispanic said. Darwin felt the steel of the barrel of the black's gun on his throat. The black removed wallet and keys from Darwin's pocket, ripping his pants. The Hispanic circled Dominique, holding the knife to her face. He ripped off her pendant necklace and squeezed the bracelet off her wrist. He patted her down, but found only her purse, which he took. Darwin angered more, but checked any movement. The Hispanic transferred his knife to his left hand. Darwin knocked the gun from the black's hand with a blow to the arm and kicked with all his might to the groin. The black went down. Darwin crouched quickly to face the Hispanic, who was coming at him. Darwin parried the knife hand and delivered a blow to the throat. Darwin felt it hurt a crack and the youth gasped, falling to his knees. The knife dropped and slid a few feet on the ground. Dominic moved quickly to pick it up, but the Hispanic reached out to take it back before she could retrieve it. Darwin picked up the black's gun. The black grunted at the Hispanic to run. Darwin moved to protect Dominic. The Hispanic came at him, the knife low and pointing up. The black hit Darwin with a massive weight of his shoulder. Darwin went face down, sliding on the concrete. He struggled to rise, dazed. The Hispanic came at him again. Darwin rolled, saw the glint of the knife blade a few feet from him, then the pinpoint pain when the blade entered his shoulder, slashing down his arm. Dominic screamed. The black man reached out, grabbing the Hispanic's arm, diverting the knife on the second thrust. What the fuck? The Hispanic said, glaring at the black. The black shoved him away toward the street, and the Hispanic limped away. The black ran after him, grabbing his arm to make him move faster. Dominique helped Darwin to his feet. You're bleeding, she said. His ripped shirt was now matted with blood. He had abrasions and cuts on his face. I've got to find help, Dominique said. Darwin leaned his back against a parked car in the street. He took my phone, he said. Dominique went into the street. Someone was standing on the side of the street looking at them. Could you help? Dominique called out. A figure turned and broke into a run. We've only got a few blocks, Dominique said. Can you walk? Dominique tore a piece of cloth from the hem of her skirt, enough to carefully cover the worst of Darwin's wounds, and guided him toward her apartment as he recovered his thinking and focused on keeping his balance. At the apartment, Dominique tended Darwin's wounds. She called emergency service, trying to get Darwin to a hospital, but stalled traffic had immobilized emergency vehicles. She reported the crime. It would be at least a day before police could respond. She treated Darwin with the supplies she had, stemmed the bleeding, found some medicines for sedation. She helped him to her bed, where he slept, and she stayed the night sitting in a chair by the bed, watching his vital signs, checking he was conscious. Near morning, Darwin woke and gazed into Dominique's concerned eyes. It was afternoon on the next day, when power was restored, 
and she was able to get an ambulance to transfer Darwin to a hospital for treatment. Just before midnight on the next day, she helped Darwin back to his West Side apartment. In a few days, Darwin was able to move and function, and he made plans to return to work. Chapter 62 Leonard stopped calling Helen many months ago, and he had little time to talk to her when she called him. He was in Washington often during the weeks, but usually was at home on the weekends. He was dating other women, she was sure, but he had always dated other women, ever since she had devoted herself to him exclusively. She suspected he might really have a significant other, more significant than she had ever been, but she had no way to confirm it with his life in Washington not being easily accessible to her. She missed two periods. She was always regular. Drugstore tests showed positive, and a rushed, hushed visit to a doctor confirmed she was pregnant. She tried to rationalize it might be Darwin's, but they had made love only twice in the last year, and many months ago, times when she was trying to convince herself she still wanted Darwin, and denied she was in love with Leonard and his lifestyle. She flew to Washington the next day. She made the first appointment available at Leonard's office. He could not take her phone call, the receptionist said, and he would not accept calls on his cell from her during business hours. But she would not be put off. She'd approach him when he left the office. She waited outside his building. He emerged with an attractive assistant and a young man dressed in a lawyer's gray three-button suit, white shirt, and patternless gold silk tie. She wondered if the assistant might be the one. She was attractive enough, even beautiful by most standards. She ran up to them. I have to speak to you, she said to Leonard. Not now, he said, waving his hand to dismiss her. She wanted to blurt it out, but she pulled at his arm as if in a tug of war. He stepped aside for a few feet with her. I'm pregnant, she said. His face was stone. He did not speak for a few seconds. Not by me. I don't need DNA confirmation to know it. He dropped his head without looking at her. Couldn't it be ours, she said. Couldn't we bring up a child together? She thought her voice sounded too pleading. She did not want to beg. Abort it, he said. Call me with the amount. I'll pay. I won't. Then don't bother me. I can ruin your career, she said. I'm married, Helen. She was shocked. She never suspected. Six years, he said. We're estranged. It was never public. And it's how she and I managed a wrong decision for both of us. And we both prefer it this way. But you'll support your child? You can't prove it. I can. And I'll go public. And you won't survive the publicity, the accusation. Leonard's face creased with concern for his future. You're an adulteress. The world won't latch on to your accusations with any credibility. I can be sure of that. I'm serious, Helen said. I'll claim you forced me. He glared. Bitch, he whispered so no one could hear. You'll regret this day, Helen said. I regret the day I met you, Leonard returned to his waiting associates. Two weeks later, at eight in the morning, after being served at her front door by a process server, Helen held divorce proceedings from Darwin's attorneys in her hand. She felt a strange detachment, as if it would happen to someone else. 
She did not care for Darwin now in the least, and she would have filed first if her lawyers could have found something to accuse Darwin of doing. Coral had disappointed the investigators. She'd held to her story of Darwin spending the night and not to be denied. But the investigators viewed witnesses who saw her drunk at the club, and the neighbor next door remembered Darwin and his description of Coral's condition and his request that she be checked. The investigators and the lawyers thought if the case came to trial, they'd never be able to use Coral as a witness. They thought she was lying. Darwin had beat Helen to the judge's bench. She'd be on the defensive now. Well, she couldn't reverse that. So luck come what may, and she'd keep working to find the gash in Darwin's angelic robe. There was one, she was sure. Some alienation of affection that a good investigator could find. That's where she'd focus with Darwin, and she'd begin working on Leonard for child support. She'd come out of this unscathed, at least not seriously scathed. She'd triumph. Chapter 63 For more than a year, Darwin thought of Dominic. Snippets of conversation, memory of a soft look or a tender word. His divorce proceedings were dragging on. He wanted to be with Dominic. He asked her to a symphony, to a Beethoven Brahms Mozart concert that he thought she would like. He respected her resistance to dating married men and invited her mother who was visiting. Dominic dressed in a plain black dress with a pearl necklace. Simple, but on her, elegant beyond expectations. She wore dark nylons and low heels, her lovely hair shining with pinpoint reflections on her naturally curly black strands was breathtaking. She smiled when Darwin complimented her on her looks. Darwin enjoyed the concert, although not his favorite music. The music captivated Dominic. He enjoyed her rapture, which, except for the intermission, was uninterrupted. At dinner she was bright and animated. She talked with her hands from her French heritage, and... He talked to her mother about immigration to the U.S. in the 60s. Dominique had a brother who was an airline pilot for Air France. He lived in Paris. Her lips moved with a unique charm on vowels, as if she were translating from the French as she spoke English. He never noticed it before, but it fascinated him now. She spoke of a postdoc in her lab with great potential who had not been funded on an excellent grant with a high score. Tops, she said. 11th percentile, but NIH only funded to above 9th percentile. He asked her about her postdoc's project that she described in detail. She thought he had a chance at a private foundation, but a letter of intent had been rejected. Darwin took them home in a taxi. At the door to her apartment, her mother went in and left them alone. Dominic paused, turning to him. That was a wonderful evening, Darwin. Thanks, she said. Could we do it again? Maybe this weekend, he asked. She hesitated, her happy face now concerned. I, I can't. I'm so sorry. But why? She paused. I can't be involved, not with a married man. Is it religious? Partly. But mainly it's not fair to you or your spouse. I haven't seen her for months. We've lived separately for more than a year. The divorce is ongoing. I want to, but I just can't, Dominic said. The sadness was plain in her eyes. She wouldn't go against her values. He took her hand and said good night. 
She stood on tiptoes and kissed him on the cheek. Two weeks later, after forming a foundation based on his internet earnings and Granny's inheritance, he transferred the full amount of NH funds granted but not funded to the postdoc in Dominique's lamb. It would keep him productive and give him time to seek additional funds. Dominique called to thank Darwin, and over the next few months, as he continued his study in surgery, he followed the progress of the recipient of the funds. He was pleased at the progress and the direct potential of an effect on clinical care of patients. He decided to expand his philanthropy, using his contacts in medicine to identify worthy individuals and built his Internet financial success by exposure and expansion. He envisioned a time when his contribution could make a lasting effect on healthcare delivery in the U.S. and worldwide. Chapter 64 For many months, Dr. Malvern was confined to his Hampton home, where he lived after he stopped practice. He'd had infection from a pulmonary embolus. He'd slipped into right-sided heart failure. Helen continued to live on her own and work in the city and visited her father when she could, but had taken no responsibility in his care. His new wife had left him almost a year ago, still demanding support, but living in Chicago where her parents lived. The former Mrs. Malvern was staying mostly with her retired sister in Florida, recovering from a stint in rehabilitation. Coral still officially lived in the Hampton house, but had moved in with a new boyfriend, a carpenter who worked in Montauk. Darwin knew Dr. Malvern enjoyed his company and made every effort to visit when he could. He visited on Sunday. Dr. Malvern was alone in the house with 24-hour nursing care where he had once so proudly introduced Darwin to his family. Except for trips to the bathroom, he was bedridden. Dr. Malvern labored with his breathing, wheezing an occasionally coughing yellow phlegm. When he spoke, he was calm and introspective. What's going on with you and Helen? The divorce and all. The settlement tries failed. She claimed her child to be mine, but that was impossible. She finally stopped that claim. Don't give her anything you can't afford, Darwin. I can't give her what she wants. She has no claims as an adulteress. You're angry, Dr. Malvern said. Darwin was angry. He felt betrayed, and yes, he felt humiliated by Helen. She claims she has evidence of my alienation of affection with a colleague, a fellow student I've known for years. Adultery? She's claimed I'm guilty, but I'm not. Dr. Malvern coughed until his face turned red. He spit into a Kleenex. Don't let the anger consume you, Darwin. Helen's not worth that. She never has been. Darwin's melange of feelings kept him from responding. But love for Helen had dissipated some time ago. He wondered at times if love had ever been between Helen and him. And Dr. Malvern was right. In the void of love, anger had seeped in. Dr. Malvern gave a short, weak laugh. <laughs> Helen's victory won't be a financial settlement. She'll try to cripple you with guilt, too. She could never love. She was always about herself, like her mother, and so different from poor Coral, a sweet child, really, always desperately reaching out. Love came to Coral more than once, too. She just couldn't accept anyone who could care for her. 
Darwin was thinking about the divorce proceeding. How do you get rid of the anger, he asked. I've been angry too long to know. Hated my wife for so long I couldn't think straight about Penny Cascade. <laughs> God, Penny was nice enough. And her love for me was more opportunity for her than caring. I acted against Janice in the divorce to avenge the anger. Jesus, most of the time I didn't even know what I was angry about. To fail at marriage makes me sad, Darwin said. Believe me, son, you got no responsibility for the failure. Helen is one of a kind. I feel for her. <laughs> but don't take on the burden of her failures in your life. You've no fault there. She would be where she is without you, believe me. A nurse came to help Dr. Malvern swallow three pills, holding a cup of water to his lips. She left as silently and quickly as she came. I'm worried about my career, Darwin said. I'm having doubts about continuing. We've all had doubts at one time or another, Dr. Malvern said. It's worse than that. Doctoring hasn't been what I expected. Well, don't judge by my career. <laughs> I'm not proud of my quality either. Darwin remained silent. It's not you, Dr. Malvern said. I got caught up in the business of medicine. I made a lot of money, but I lost the satisfaction that good patient care can bring. I missed out. I'm about to finish training, but not go into practice, Darwin said. I'm discouraged. I have money. I want to use it for philanthropy in science. Oh, that's, that's, that's too bad. Healthcare needs clinical doctors like you. Moral, dedicated, innovative. Are you sure? I've seen too much politics corrupting patient care, and I've seen financial reward replace the desire to make people better, live longer, be able to enjoy their life. Altruistic, maybe. And maybe the reality has always been there. Dr. Malvern wheezed on an intake of air. <gasps> no, it has changed. The reality of healing for profit has insidiously captured almost every aspect of medicine. I'm in love with a doctor struggling to provide care to humans. She's passionate about it. Have you asked her yet? Dr. Malvern chuckled. <laughs> No, she's uncomfortable with my still being married. Don't make any mistakes. You ask her, boy. She dates other people sometimes. Don't let her slip away. I have helped a postdoc in her lab financially. He's doing basic research with great potential clinical relevance and without a thought of fame or riches. And I felt good about it. I think that's what I want to do. Help the right people do the right things. Dr. Malvern leaned forward. I'm telling you this, Darwin. Don't lose a good woman for any reason. You deserve her. He said his goodbyes to Dr. Malvern, and as he turned to leave, Dr. Malvern spoke. Darwin, I lost a bundle in the Clarkson settlement, but I got a secret stash that no one knows about, saved over the years. I don't have long, and I want it to go to a better cause than this family. Not much, maybe $750,000 when I invested it, but I want to give it to your cause. Dr. Malvern said he'd arrange transfer to the foundation the next day. It was the last time Darwin saw Dr. Malvern alive.
Chapter 65 Mrs. Malvern stayed with Helen for six months after the baby was born. Baby Elizabeth. Helen breastfed for the first few months and took a leave of absence from work. She did not think about work at all, although she still went to openings and exhibitions in the evenings once or twice a week. One morning after Elizabeth was fed and asleep, Helen and her mother were having breakfast together, as had become one of their habits. Always leisurely, relaxed, with silences filled with a new friendship that neither had experienced together before. "'I never imagined you as a mother,' her mother said, "'and I never thought you'd be a good mother.' Helen had lost her contrary responses to everything her mother said. Helen loved little Elizabeth. Elizabeth had become her life. She felt as she'd never felt before, so much that she had begun to develop a fear that something would happen.' Something unpredictable and evil would take Elizabeth away. She smiled at her mother. I always thought Cora would have the children. You have your career, her mother said. Helen reached for the coffee pot and filled her mother's cup, then her own. Are you missing the daily work at the gallery? her mother said. Helen organized her thoughts, gathering a true response to her feelings. I don't miss it any more. Is part of it the gallery? I think part of it's the constant tension of the New York art scene. I think it was taking a toll on me I never realized. They sat in silence. Helen scanned the news on her iPad. Her mother looked out the window to the street, occasionally glancing at Helen. Do you ever consider moving back out to the Hampton House? Carl's never there. We could bring it back to its old glory of so many years ago. And it would be perfect for Elizabeth over the next few years. What would I do? Helen asked. I can't commute. Leave Elizabeth alone. Is there a position at the local museum? One of the private galleries? Helen hadn't seriously considered the idea. She always thought any position outside the city would be a career buster. Something to think about, she said. And we could build a natural life for Elizabeth without the false values, the hubris, the lack of caring. For an instant, Helen felt a surge of irritation and a need to correct her mother to tell her to keep thoughts to herself. Leave me alone to make my life with Elizabeth, she thought. But they'd come beyond that now, both of them. Their mutual love for Elizabeth had changed them, and the responses of old didn't seem right to Helen anymore. I'll look into it, Helen said. Her mother smiled with pleasure and without any trace of victory or superiority. Helen felt good. By the end of the year, Helen had arranged a job at the county-owned art museum, and with Mother helping, Elizabeth and Helen settled in the Malvern house in the Hamptons. Elizabeth was mobile on all fours now, making sounds with meaning that needed speculative interpretation, and the main floor of the house was transformed into a nursery. Flowers and shrubs bloomed on the exterior, and the views once again flowed through the newly washed windows where the blinds were never lowered and the draperies never drawn. Chapter 66 Dominic's career in the lab continued to contribute knowledge that garnered international recognition. She served as dean of research at the medical school and still managed to see patients once a week. After graduation, 
Darwin had devoted full time to building his philanthropic foundation and heading the growing number of internet enterprises that had spawned from his initial Scrabble-like game he'd made for Granny. He established and managed his own laboratory, but did not practice medicine. On the Wednesday, three weeks after Helen had moved to the Hamptons, the divorce was legally finalized. Darwin saw Dominique at Grand Rounds at University Hospital. He'd heard she was dating a banker. After rounds, she was busy talking to colleagues and students, and he waited in the back of the auditorium until she was free. He waved to get her attention. She smiled as she walked toward him and sat down beside him. They exchanged pleasantries. The divorce is final, he said. Her face tensed. She looked away. I heard about the banker, he said. She still did not look at him. Things have changed. I'd like to see you. He could not see her face, see what she was feeling. He waited. She didn't move. Finally, she looked at him. Could we just have dinner together, he asked. Oh, Darwin, I, I don't know. Is it the banker? He's asked me to marry him. She held up a diamond engagement ring on her left ring finger. His heart sank. Just dinner? I don't think I can. I wouldn't feel right about it. Think of it as a professional meeting. We can talk about work, he smiled. It could never be professional between us now. You know that. And it wouldn't be fair to Adrian. Darwin took out a pen and a scrap of paper. I'll make a reservation at Le Canard, in the Hotel Largent, he said. Thursday night at seven. Think about it. Come if you can. I'll wait. The days passed slowly. Darwin had no calls from Dominique. He feared she would never show. Finally, he called. Can you come? He asked. I don't know, Darwin. It's not an easy decision for me. Thank God she didn't say no. He'd let her think. He knew she'd have to break her engagement if she decided to come. That was the way she lived her life. He arrived at Le Canard restaurant half an hour before seven. He waited at the table with two glasses of champagne. At seven o'clock, the maitre d' led Dominique to the table. She looked wonderful. A red dress, her hair held back by a clip. Ruby earrings glowed on her ears. Gold bangles graced her left wrist. He stood to greet her. She stopped a few feet away. He couldn't find words. He gazed at her with wonder. She smiled. When she reached out to take his hand, he saw her ring was gone. Hi, she said. This is the final episode of Guardian of Deceit, a novel by William H. Coles. You'll find links to all episodes of Guardian of Deceit and the iTunes and Google Play feeds at storyandfictionpodcast.com. I'm Bill Coles, your host, and this podcast is produced by storyandliterayfiction.com. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.